Squadcast this week, we spend one 20-minute period on Squadcast with One Night a Miami Star, Kingsley Benadier, and we turn and face the strange with Johnny Flynn, star of the new David Bowie biopic of sorts, Stardust. All that plus usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that heard the Marvel Studios fanfare on brand new content this week for the first time in a long time. And we see this as an absolute win. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, once again, brought to you in glorious lockdown-arama. And I am joined by my two colleagues of such... Le- yes, that's right, just two. Usually three, but just two this week. Two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. I also had a little moment when the Marvel fanfare came on, I'll be honest. <laughs> Is it possible we're too much in the bag, Chris? It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> My latest check cleared, Helen, so I'm I'm all good. <laughs> I'm, I'm all good. That's a joke. That's a joke. Yes, that's a as joke. your lawyer, Chris, oh, let Jesus, me make it that's clear. That's a joke. Uh, we're also joined by Nerd... <laughs> Nerd Lance Corporal this week, I think you are. James Dyer. Really? Yes. Lance is that, Corporal. Is that good or bad? Okay. It's not great. I mean, it feels like I've been seriously demoted from Emperor, I've got to be honest with well, you. You but, had self-appointed you know, yourself fine. as as Emperor. All Emperors self-appoint. That's how they become Emperors. <laughs> it's not that easy, surely, is it? It's how tyranny works, Chris. <laughs> and that's not how... That's, no, that's exactly how it works. Uh, as, as we're, yeah, that is exactly how it saying. works. <laughs> yes. You just need sufficient number of bellends to agree with you, and then no, that's it, what well, you are. Look, so look, it's, it's fine. Know. James just, you know went and milled around the capital for a bit mm. and declared himself. And yeah. and what do you know, everyone ignored him and then arrested him. Helen, I think it's time for, for you and I to vote on the matter. It's time for James and the giant impeach. <laughs> Jimbo is guilty of crimes against podcasting. How do you plead? Uh, not not guilty, no, Your Honour. There's a long, long list of evidence that yep. suggests otherwise. <laughs> Call the first witness. <laughs> Call the first witness, Your Honour. Uh, call in the pilot TV podcast, Your Honour. <laughs> <laughs> call in hundreds of episodes of the Empire podcast, Your Honour. Okay, yeah, guilty oh, as God. charged. Anyway, welcome both, welcome both. Um, so at, at the risk of going full Jimbo and turning this into an impromptu episode of the pilot TV podcast, uh, I am currently <laughs> on yet another rewatch of the American version of The Office. And I currently am on season five. And I'm enjoying it very, very much. But because I've seen The Office a number of times now, although I always lose interest when it gets to the rather crappy later seasons. Uh, so I'm going to try and make it through this time. Mm-hmm. See if you can play along with me at home. If you're watching The Office, if you're trying to keep up with The Office Ladies podcast or you're moving slightly ahead as I am doing now, see if you can play a fun game, which is guess how many camera crews this documentary has. <laughs> but look. All of these sort of faux documentary setups, like none of them make sense. Like, who is really filming Modern Family, and for what purpose? Yeah. It like n- it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's just kind of a. But this was this was my thing in Borat too, and I'm like, who is holding the camera? I'm very confused as to who the cameraman is in the scenario, especially when he's you know he's staying with those two uh, mm. Republican guys. It's like who's the dude filming? Like 
who is that? And why is no one looking yeah, at them? Why does no one mention them? Why, why, why do they not become characters? There are, there are a couple of ways you can approach this. Mm-hmm. But whilst watching The Office again, because as the show gets bigger and the budget gets more lavish, you know, and they, they throw in more camera crews, I guess. And uh, there's a couple of ways of approaching it. I don't know how Modern Family reconciled the, the conceit. But Parks and Recreation, basically, it just became a conceit. This is just mm-hmm. the way in which the show yeah. is made. So it's almost Shakespearean that people can look at the camera and have, have you know, soliloquies to the camera and the monologues to the camera and talking heads and whatnot. But The Office, the problem with The Office is that they did try to address it. And so there is there is a storyline towards the end of the show's run where the documentary crew become characters in the show. And one of them turns out to have a crush on Pam and they get in a sort of weird love triangle with Pam and Jim and it's fucking terrible. And then... The end of the show is the airing of the documentary, right? But that means that they've been filming this documentary for nine years. <laughs> and who's funding this documentary? <laughs> if it's an ongoing series, I can understand it. I could understand it, but it's not. It seems to be a one-off documentary that someone's been filming for nine years. I mean, some documentaries take a long time. There have been documentaries shot over longer periods. I mean, maybe not every day in an yeah. office where nothing happens. Is it Richard Linklater actually making <laughs> the documentary? Is it sort of aging them in real time? It's a life that, in That would have been amazing office. if they got him in at the end. What an amazing meta reveal that have been, that it's, it's Richard Linklater. That would have been extraordinary. But yeah, it's, no, seriously, count the, count the uh, camera crews. I watched an episode last night in season five, early on in season five, and there's at least one scene where there are four camera crews in a very, very small room. They sent two camera crews to New York to be with Pam. So they have four back at Dunder Mifflin. They have two in New York with Pam. And then at the end of the episode, Toby, played by Paul Lieberstein, is in Costa Rica, and they sent a camera crew to him for a button at the end of the show. So that's seven camera crews in one episode, how the fuck? So the conceit is essentially what we need is another show now, right? Mm-hmm. That would be about an eccentric billionaire <laughs> who wants to to chronicle modern life. So uh-huh. he picks a middle class extended family in California, uh, office in wherever the fuck, and a government building in Pawnee, Indiana. What are you? Oh, well, you wherever the fuck? You take that back. I you put Scranton's name in. I haven't in. watched it. Oh my sweet giddy aunt. Scranton, Pennsylvania. Scranton, Pennsylvania. For, for your information, okay. is where the office is set. Anyway, I just wanted to get it off my chest because I was watching it last night going, what the hell's going on here? Uh, and I've also started watching Shit's Creek. Oh my God, it's amazing. Which I, I think it's delightful. Yeah, I just got through a second mm. rewatch of Ted Lasso, which oh. was also delightful. Oh. Ted, Ted Lasso it's is delightful. Perfect. And I hate football and comedy. And yet there is something about that show because it is, on the one hand, incredibly upbeat, optimistic, likeable, and just awesome and wholesome. But it's also got real mm. teeth as well. Like it's got bite to it. And I just, I think it's fucking you came, brilliant. You came around to this. You were a, a Lasso hater, weren't you? You were a Lasso skeptic. No, I wasn't actually. We reviewed it oh, on God. the Pilot TV podcast. And uh, me and Boyd liked it very much. And Terry was what? having none of it. But uh, but I didn't watch it all, and I've been basically I've been now I finally got around to where I'm going to I'm watching the rest of the series, um, and it is it is as delightful as I as I thought it might be. Fair enough. Well, listen, that impromptu takeover of the Empire Podcast by the Pilot TV Podcast is now <laughs> over. It is time to get on with this week's Empire. Well, it no, it's not because at it some though? point at some point 
You'll do your thing. <laughs> well, Chris, as we discuss this week's, oh God, we are, because we're going to be talking about fucking WandaVision, yeah, aren't exactly. we? Oh, yeah, we right. are. Yeah. Yes, we no, are. No, look, Chris, it's fine. The, the way you can tell it's not the Pilot TV <laughs> podcast is I'm here because I've never been invited. So oh! that's how you know. I thought the way you could tell that this isn't the Pilot TV podcast, Helen, is because people are listening to this. I thought that was oh! the way. That- Ooh, burn. In fairness, Helen, Chris has never been invited either. The fact that he's been on it is neither here nor there. He was not in any way invited. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do just tend to walk into the room, turn up my microphone and start talking. It's much more difficult to do that on Squadcast, it has to be said. But hey, we'll be talking TV later on when we get round to talking about WandaVision. Uh, but this is the Empire Film Podcast and not the Pilot TV Podcast. And uh, because there's only three of us this week, we're going to set the three fact structure to one side for one Woo-hoo. week. Just for one week. <laughs> Just for one week, folks. It will be back next week when we will have someone in the fourth chair. I believe it is Amon who's on the rotation next week. So he never brings good facts. So (laughs) you don't want to to bring your A game, (laughs) guys. It's it's totally fine. In fact, should we just award next week's point to Helen? (laughs) She's already won. (laughs) And we'll be back the week after that as well. Uh, Before we get into it as well, though, a little announcement. As you know, this is podcast 447. Uh, podcast 450 is is hurtling towards us uh, with the the unavoidable velocity of a planet destroying comet. Usually, that means we do a live show, and we had uh, agreed to do a live show in February on February 3rd, where we were going to be at King's Place in London, our spiritual home for live podcasts, and we would be streaming that show. We wouldn't have had an audience because of restrictions, obviously, but we were going to stream that show. Uh, but because of the lockdown restrictions, they are obviously, for for good reason, more draconian than they have been in the past. We can't even be in the same room together. So we have decided not to go ahead with that show. Uh, we're going to rearrange that show. So if you have bought a streaming ticket, then uh, I believe your ticket is still going to be valid. We haven't chosen a date yet, again, for obvious reasons for the rescheduled show, but uh, we're hoping it'll be sometime in April. Uh, obviously, we're, we have to... Uh, we have to act in accordance with the regulations and with the government advice on this. So we're going to keep you guys posted about when that is. Um, but it still means that episode 450 is coming. We're not just going to skip it. Uh, there is an episode 450. It will be in three weeks' time. Uh, we're not sure what we're going to do with that yet. Uh, we may do a live-streamed episode we may not. If you have any strong feelings in the matter, do get in touch with us on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. Uh, Helen is at Helen L. O'Hara. And James is at Nerd. <laughs> Nerd Lance Corporal. Uh, that is what he is on Twitter. No, he's at James C. Dyer. At James, James C. Dyer. C. Dyer. Yes. What, what does the C stand for? We may never know. Please don't say it, Jimbo. I don't want to edit it this week. So, <laughs> so do let us know if you can on Twitter. And speaking of getting in touch with us on Twitter, it is time for this week's listener question. la di da di da because the three-fact structure has been rested, just rested for a week. And the question, it comes from at Sometimes Movies, a lady called Charlotte. She uh, says, please, can you chat about your favourite teachers, both fictional and real teachers that you had? Because it's been a hard week for our profession this week. Now, Charlotte sent this question in for last week's show, but we already had a question uh, for last week's show. Um, because it is a tough time for teachers right now. One of my best friends mm-hmm. is a head teacher, and I know that you know they're, they're, they're up against it, uh, to say the least. And uh, our hearts and our thoughts go out to everybody on the front lines. So let's start with real teachers. Who are the real teachers, guys, who had an impact on you? 
Well, um, I'm contractually obliged to say my mum because she was my Spanish teacher through school and was a really, really good one. Très bien. Yeah. Um, muy bien, indeed. Um, so good. <laughs> thanks, guys. Yeah, no, she and was, She she basically she started <laughs> off on like day one of form one, just speaking Spanish. Didn't speak any English the first class, and we're all what? sitting there at eleven, just being like, "What is happening?" But it was kind of it was all very very basic, slow, easy Spanish. It was all kind of you know figureoutable by context, but there was that moment of. What's happening? And why is it happening? And how do we make it stop? Did you speak Spanish at this point? Did she grow up? No, no, no. A couple of words. Hang on. This, this, is this how they teach languages to kids now? Where they just go in full immersion and don't even, they like pretend they don't speak your language and they no, only no. Like, talk to you fact, in. This was about for the first 10, 15 minutes and then she relented and, you know. A sea of tear-stained <laughs> faces in front of her. She went, oh, maybe, I've, maybe I've done something bad here. No, no, it, it genuinely worked. She got really, really good results. And uh, and like, you know, by the time you were A-level, she'd be like, all right, go away, read act one of the play and come back in tomorrow and we'll discuss it. You know, kind of worked. Oh, okay. So I, I did this, I did, a, I did a BSL, British Sign Language course, quite a few years ago. And I remember going into that and being really thrown by the fact that at no point did anyone speak. They came in and just started signing. And I just felt like, I'm here to learn. I have no idea. You're just waving, gesticulating wildly in my direction. I don't know what this means. And it was really, really disconcerting. But you do kind of eventually mm. yeah. catch up-ish. I mean, the kind of sign language I knew at that point probably, probably not, wasn't very appropriate. No, probably so, not helpful you know. uh, at that point. Although maybe, you know. What's the difference between BSL and ASL? Because I watched Sound of Metal very recently. Very different. Very different. Uh, American Sign Language well, is completely. It's, like, it's almost like a completely different language. So uh, American Sign Language is very single channel. They were a lot of it with one hand. British Sign Language you use both hands for most stuff. But it's. Uh, I don't know which is easier or more difficult. All I know is when I watch The West Wing and uh, and Joey starts signing, I don't know what the fuck she's doing. So. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, I should also. Um Give a shout out to Mr. Ramsey and Mr. Brolly, who were my English and history teachers, respectively, and were bloody great in both cases. Mr. Ramsey was so good that even though I started the class hating Philip Larkin, like genuinely felt sick going into a Philip Larkin class because I just hated him so much, I ended up quite liking him. They really fuck you up, your English teachers. <laughs> they, they may not mean to, but they do. Mm-hmm. All my teachers hated me. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what why. to tell you. <laughs> this may come as no shock to you. Um, no. I went to a very sporty school, and I was not one for sports particularly. So skiving sports became something of an art form for me. Uh, and my housemaster didn't really appreciate that particularly. Um, my, my English teacher in my junior school, Mr. Farah, was quite uh, quite formative for me. Like he, Because he was one of these teachers where... He loved books, just loved books, like almost fetishized books. So he would come and he would read stories to the class from books, but with so much passion and so much enthusiasm that it was infectious. I think he maybe encouraged me to start reading a lot more. And like, I've always gotten okay-ish with my English teachers because I was quite good at that subject. Mm. Like my maths teachers used to routinely humiliate me. Slightly confusing, Mr. Taylor, my maths teacher, who could not stand me because I was basically a numerate, then became an English teacher, and then we got on fine. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. Absolutely true. Do you yeah. stay in touch with any of these people? I mean, are they Absolutely still alive? Absolutely not, no. <laughs> and bear in mind, when I went to school back in 1863, the teachers used to routinely throw things at you, hit you with things, kick you in the face. Like, it was quite, you know, full-on extreme education. So, uh, you know, it, it, it leaves scars. Uh, I am still in touch with Mr. Ramsey anyway, and my mum, obviously. I still talk to her occasionally. <laughs> um, Despite the Spanish homework. <laughs> and the others, if I'm home and I see them, then I'll, I'll say hello. But I, I also skipped PE. I, I had to change my uh, English class 
in in sixth form. And the re- the ostensible reason I did this was to get more free periods in my day because I was doing four subjects instead of three, and it <laughs> messed up my timetable. But the <laughs> nice side effect was it meant that I got no PE and no RE. So that was a that was a happy bonus. So I managed to skive f- uh, physical ed, education, and religious education, and wow. get more free periods. Oh, wow, you just best. scored there, didn't you? It was, yeah, it was mega. I, I used to find intriguing ways of getting out of it. So I hated uh, football and rugby. So I took up fencing, partly because, <laughs> oh, okay, look, let's be honest, they gave me a sword. That was really all it took. But our fencing teacher was Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. And if for no, no other reason than that, absolutely true, if for no other reason than that, you take up fencing. <laughs> it's like, so just to be clear, the guy from Iron Maiden is going to teach me how to hit people with a sword. I am in there. I am absolutely on board. Was Eric Clapton your your AG teacher? What, what, what was going on? Is it is it possible? Is it just barely possible that one of us had a fancier education than the other two? Look, I'm not saying I went to Hogwarts or anything, but my potions teacher, let me tell you, was a very big influence on my life. <laughs> I didn't go to Hogwarts, but I did go to a school that was a castle on a cliff. So, wow. it's a state school. Isn't that a song from Les Mis? I'm very confused. <laughs> follow that i can't follow bruce dickinson I, I don't think i was taught by anyone famous uh in fact let me just check no i wasn't uh at any point but hey ho what can you do uh uh yeah so teachers who had a big impact on me my headmaster at my primary school in Lockbrigland in northern ireland uh mr sloan was a big uh influence on me uh lovely lovely fella and um uh after we graduated from primary school uh, one of my friends, we were, we were, there, was, there were two of us who were moving on to the grammar school afterwards. So the two of us passed our 11 plus. Uh, it was a very, very small primary school. And so two of us passed our 11 plus. We were moving on to the grammar school, Bambridge Academy. And myself and Wayne Moran and Mr. Sloan uh, got us both to work in his shop over the summer. He also owned a... Uh, <laughs> he, he owned... He owned two stores. No, three. He owned three shops as well as being a headmaster. He owned uh, three shops called FC Computers and Tackle. Uh, So he had a branch in Banbridge. He had a branch in Lurgan. And he had a branch in Craig Avon Shopping Centre. And this was a shop. Now, guys, if you ever want to go in Dragon's Den, there's maybe a unique gap in the market here. This was a shop that sold computer equipment and fishing equipment. (laughs) <laughs> and computerized fishing equipment sadly not uh, so the one in Banbridge that's where me and Wayne uh, worked we, you know, we were essentially just you know lackeys but just you know to get a sense of what it was like to work in a shop and whatnot uh, and so we went to the shop and the first half of it would be computers like Amstrads and uh, and uh, the second half of the shop would be fishing rods and fishing tackle <laughs> and fishing gear and there was a fridge and people used to come in and go maggots <laughs> he used to come in and go, maggots, I want maggots. And you used to have to open the fridge and take out this bucket of maggots that they would use as bait. Ew. I presume bait. I mean, they might have been just hungry. And then you got like a like a cup and you dipped it into the bucket of maggots. And then you 
put it into no, a no, bag what? and you sold Why it to Why are you telling us a story about how you used to sell maggots to people? Mm, that's yeah, not good. One of them looked like Kiefer Sutherland, actually. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so he had a huge impact on me. Um, and then at, uh, at Bambridge Academy, teachers who had a big impact on me, uh, the biggest by far was uh, Mr. Griffin. He was my history and politics teacher and it was just one of the nicest, kindest, most inspirational kind of dudes. Uh, he hailed from down south. Uh, had a twinkle in his eye. He was very, very smart. Had a lovely sense of humor. Wore tweed, naturally. Uh, he was a big influence on me. Loved being in his classes. When you went to go and see him, did you have to knock on the Griffin door? Oh, my oh God. I know I would just slither into his classroom. <laughs> we all know you were a Hufflepuff. <laughs> Chris so, is yeah, not a Hufflepuff. Him. But there's also Mrs. Cartmill, my English teacher, Mr. Chalkley, my drama teacher. All sorts of people who had uh, big influences on me and who'd be frankly appalled to see where I've ended up. <laughs> hey, should we talk about movies at some Let's point? Let's talk about movies. Because um, movies are just awash with great teachers, um, which is a good thing. Obviously, the one that sprang to mind instantly when talking about this uh, question was Dead Poets Society. Mm -hmm. was Robin Williams' character in that because I think he's just fantastic. And has a kind of lasting effect on on those kids in terms of opening up their minds, which is really good. I also saw for the first time this week the SNL sketch yes. based on that, which I had never seen before. Do not uh, do not ask anyone about that sketch. Do not look it up. Do not read an explanation. Just watch it. It's somewhere down my Twitter feed. Oh my God. It's yeah. one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's tremendous. It is tremendous. But yes, and then and and goodbye, Mr. Chips as well. If you remember Mr. Mm. Chips and that teaching sort of generations of young kids, most of whom then march off and get themselves killed in the war. Uh, but that one mm -hmm. is a absolutely monumental tearjerker of the first order. Robert Donat. Mm hmm. Two had a hole in the middle, I believe. <laughs> You're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can all agree the best teacher in the history of schools was Bruce Dickinson. John Kimball. <laughs> John Kimball. John yeah. Kimball. It's not a Duma. Uh, yes, kindergarten cop, Helen, kindergarten cop. He impressed upon young minds. Yeah. I think that was, you know. Who is your daddy and what does he do? <laughs> Who is your daddy and what does he do? <laughs> Who can forget that lesson? Well, not me, because you had that little voice box that you played over oh, and over. Oh, yes, over I the, did, the, the little Arnie thing. Oh, that was great. Yeah. So much, fun. so many much fun. laws to be had there. Look, and you know, there, there are others, but it, you know, what are we saying as a good teacher? What a great way to bring this segment to an end. We name three teachers and then go, and there are others. If you no. want to have your question, <laughs> no, what I'm saying is like, what makes a great teacher? Are we saying that it's someone who inspires with love or it's someone who is just effective? Because if it's the latter, there's, and just bear with me, just bear with me, Sheev Palpatine, because you know, was he the most, you know, nurturing, encouraging teacher? Absolutely not. Was he a effective at making Anakin fulfill his potential and becoming a Sith? Yes. Okay, so I'm no, saying not really. I'm going to quibble on this because first, his first apprentice that we know of uh, ended up cut in two and falling down a, a, a shaft, right? But he got better. He I got mean, better. He, he did get better, but at the same time, it's not it's not a great result for your first time out. He went to run Anakin, on a crime family. Anakin then got all of his limbs chopped off. In fairness, he didn't have the higher ground. Yeah, he didn't. And that was on him because he had, you know, failed to strategize, hadn't he? So I, I just have some quibbles with, with his teaching methods. And of course, Anakin then turns on him 
afterwards. Yes, but I mean, you know, which it's, suggests it's that his teaching wasn't that effective. Insubordination, really, Helen. I'm going to quibble with this just in general grounds that I don't consider him to be a teacher. He's more of a tutor. He's more of a sort of. Oh, I see. He's like a private tutor. capacity. Mm, yeah. yeah. So see what you mean. It's uh, not state this, education, is it? This has to be teachers who go up to the front of class and write things in the blackboard are inspirational. Whether it's you know at university or in a secondary school or even a primary school capacity, like John Kimball in Kindergarten Cop. That's what Charlotte was getting at, I think. So I'm going to disqualify Palpatine, but I am going to allow Henry Jones Jr. Yes. <laughs> I mean, did his students learn much or did they just sit and look? I mean, can yeah. you blame them? I cannot. I do not. But I'm I'm just not sure how much they would have learned and certainly how much they would have learned about good archaeological practice um, because he doesn't <laughs> seem at all qualified to, uh, to explain any of that. So He's very I, much a do what I say, don't do what I do type of guy, isn't that he? That is true. That is true. Yeah. Maybe he Henry Jones Sr. would have been a better teacher. I mean, we know he, he did quite a good job of passing on knowledge to his son. So He remembered his Charlemagne. He did. <laughs> <you know. laughs> um, yeah. yeah. How about uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds? You just, you didn't need to even finish that sentence. How about Michelle Pfeiffer? <laughs> and I'm totally on board. Uh, yes, Michelle Pfeiffer, why the hell not in Dangerous Minds? That sort of inspirational teacher mm. getting to grips with, you know, kids who are a little bit disenfranchised. Absolutely, that became that was a bit of a genre, wasn't it, in the uh, in the eighties and nineties? Sister Act too, Sister Mary Clarence. Yeah, I was about to say she's no Sister Mary Clarence, but she's pretty good <laughs> in that. Uh, actually, one of my favourites of that little genre was Danny DeVito in Renaissance Man. Mm. If you remember, he was teaching Shakespeare to a bunch of army cadets, and uh, and they end up uh, standing up and wasn't it? Is it which speech is it? Is it Henry V? I think they end oh, up. Oh, I have no idea. Anyway, it's really good, and the speech kind of works. A couple more I'm going to mention. So over on University Tutors, I think a shout out is due to Michael Caine's character. Um, yes. Frank, I believe his name is, in Educating Rita, which is a tremendous, tremendous film. Really funny and a little bit sad. And uh, uh, if you haven't seen that, do check it out. It's great. Julie Walters on Belting Form also. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm also going to mention John Cleese's sex education teacher in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. <laughs> literally has it to course in front of the kids. It's the only way to make them learn, folks. Oh, God. And, um, uh, yeah, that's a that's a pretty good one. And Perry King, if we're talking about inspirational teachers in mid-80s and mid-90s movies, uh, getting to grips with kids who are a little bit disenfranchised, Perry King in Class of 1984 has a very unusual and orthodox uh, approach to this, maybe frowned upon by authorities today. He kills a bunch of them. So a little um, bit like Tom Berenger in The Substitute, you know, yeah. the punks. <laughs> I mean, who uh, need to be taken out, uh, ideally with a buzzsaw. As your lawyer, Chris, <laughs> I, I don't think we can really condone uh, Not that sort of. I mean, you know, just okay. As long Play as you me very, back my words, Helen. At which point did I condone? I just said they were unorthodox, unusual methods that might be frowned upon by today's authorities. At no point <laughs> did I say it was the right thing to do. Wink, mm -hmm. wink. Oh my God, no winking, Chris, no winking. What? Uh, yeah, that's kind of in the same vein, I guess, as 187, right? Oh God, yeah. The Samuel yeah. Jackson film. That's a fucking bleak film. Mm. Yeah. I feel like we may be moving away from the yes. kind of inspirational- more upliftingly, more upliftingly, and 
perhaps more in 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 theme with the pilot tv podcast uh i would say coach <laughs> eric taylor from friday night lights clear <gasps> eyes full hearts can't, can't lose. lose he is amazing also and i still maintain this and i bang on about this on the other podcast uh <laughs> not enough people here in the uk have watched that show it is mm. second season aside one of the greatest tv shows ever and everyone <laughs> should watch it because it's 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 epic coach taylor is great but he is a coach not a teacher i mean and in british schools they often do both but yes, in American he's a schools, PA they usually, teacher helen <laughs> well they mm, i don't know that he actually is though is he i'm okay with coaches because then it allows coach carter oh, well, from coach then. carter it allows coach Ballbricker from porkies um i think that you know it opens <laughs> up a whole world of possibilities if mm. we allow coaches Oh, well, and in that case, there's about a million of them. So, yeah, fair enough. But yeah. I, I and there thinking. are others. <laughs> Sorry, we should end this segment every single week. <laughs> and there are others. <laughs> this is not meant to be definitive in any way, shape or form. We haven't even mentioned Sidney Poitier in To Serve With Love. Oh, yeah. Speaking of things that um, I studied in English at, at school. I studied that book at school. He's tremendous in that. Uh, let me see who else. Oh, yeah, speaking of uh, uh, Mr. Chips, of course, famously, the pitch for Breaking Bad was Mr. Chips mm. becomes Scarface. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't want either of those people to be my teacher. By the way, Scarface <laughs> would be a terrible teacher. Yeah. Walter White, I'm not saying, would be the best person to be teaching you. No. And he wouldn't be, actually, because he was so caught up in his ego, I think, that he looked down on his students. You know, you can see it in his attitude towards Jesse all the way through that show. But anyway, we're talking about TV shows again. Fuck it. Let's talk about School of Rock. (laughs) School of Rock. That's a great call. Yes, absolutely. Also, Christopher Plummer as Aristotle in Alexander. (laughs) Oh, you mean the role originally played by Kevin Spacey? (laughs) Uh, Wait, no, is that the one? Anyway, yeah. If you've got Aristotle in your movie, that's got to count for something. And do we count (laughs) all the historical figures in Bill and Ted? Yeah, so great. Definitely. Oh, Beef oven. That's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. I don't know if we do. I don't know if we do. Probably not. But, uh, but yeah, why Why the hell not? Uh, any more for any more before we move on and end once again. Thank God we didn't do uh, three-fact structure because this is epic. Uh, any more for any more? Not Cameron Diaz in Bad Teacher. No, because she's a bad teacher. <laughs> Miss Jean Brody, prime, prime of Miss Jean Brody. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. Mm. Mr. Holland's opus. Yeah, that's Severus good Snape. Yes. How have we not mentioned any teachers in Harry Potter? Yeah. I don't think he was the best teacher in Hogwarts. Hey, Helen, he redeemed himself. Yeah, it's McGonagall, Spoiler. though. Yeah, he, he bullied a child for six years and then <laughs> redeemed himself. Um, it's, it's definitely Professor McGonagall. Yeah, it probably is. Or Lupin. What about uh, Gilderoy Lockhart? No, Lupin, definitely wasn't Lockhart. Lupin knew his stuff. Lockhart was... a. I mean, definitely flamboyant, but yeah. not perhaps effective. All right. Okay. I, I like those guys. I think my favorite may be Dewey Finn in School of Rock. I love that movie. Jack Black's incredible in that film. Is he strictly looks like a teacher? The, uh, he is a teacher. He's a, he doesn't go Mr. through the- Mr. Schneebly is a teacher. Dewey yes. Finn is an <laughs> imposter. This is true. This is true. Ned Schneebly. Um is the best teacher. And if, if we're going to be nitpicking Helen, then John Kimball is not a teacher either, is he? Okay. I mean, well, that, that I didn't true. say John Kimball, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> but yes, that's my that's my pick, Dewey Finn, or if wet, Professor Charles Xavier. All right. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves, and there are others we should mention as well. Podcasts. Uh, other podcasts. There are other podcasts that don't take 40 minutes to answer one question. So you, you're you perfectly welcome to listen to those if 
But if you want to have a question read out on this podcast, then you can get in touch with us basically on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Chris Hewitt, so reply to any of my tweets or just ask me a question on Twitter or slide into my DMs and uh, we will hopefully read out some questions uh, in the coming weeks. Although I think we're sorted for the next couple of weeks, but, but do keep them coming. Keep them coming, folks. Keep them coming. Right, time now for our first guest this week, and it is someone who is very multi-talented. He is an actor. He is a musician. He is a actor and musician. He is Johnny Flynn. He is the star of this week's unusual David Bowie biopic, Stardust. And I say unusual in that it focuses on a very specific period in David Bowie's life in between the release of Space Oddity and the period where he became Seeky Stardust, which really made him blossom as a, as a huge international star. It's also unusual because it doesn't have a single lick of David Bowie music in the movie. And when the trailer for this movie first came out, that became very, very apparent and led to much guffawing, and not least from me, hands being held up on the Empire podcast. Um, the movie itself is more interesting than the trailer, I think, uh, makes it seem. And Flynn is very, very good in the role indeed. And so I was very, very happy to speak to him on Squadcast this week. I think it was Squadcast this week. Uh, we, we, uh, we got on there and we had a good old time talking about playing an icon and we got we tackled the thorny issue of the fact that there's no David Bowie music in the David Bowie movie. Here we go. Me talking to Johnny Flynn. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star of Stardust, Mr. Johnny Flynn. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, not too bad, all things considered. We were just having a little chat there before I pressed record about uh, anxiety dreams and whatnot. And, and you know, I, I get the dream about being on stage and forgetting my lines. Oh, you do? Oh, okay, so yeah. it's not just, not just uh, the reserve of actors. No. Um, thank God for that. Um, <laughs> I can share, the, can share the anguish. Yeah, precisely. Is that the sort I, of thing you can I you have get? very nuanced versions of that dream where, you know, they've remounted a production that I was in 10 years ago and everybody in the car, everyone else in the cast thought it'd be a great idea just to kind of barrel straight in and not have any rehearsals. And I have, I, I'm convinced I've got a terrible uh, memory. I used to think I had a fantastic memory and then I had kids and now I've got a terrible memory and uh, <laughs> I literally can't remember anything. Um, so, so these are, th this, this dream of forgetting my lines is, is horrific for me. Oh my God. Um, Did you have anything like this whilst making Stardust? Did David Bowie invade your dreams? Um, he, he did and he has done since. <laughs> it's been... Well, I was, there was a period where I was di digesting David, like every, every waking moment was, was David, you know, just listening to his speaking voice and, and kind of trying to walk around in my, you know, whatever hotel room I was in, uh, like him and reading, you know, dozens of biographies and, and looking at pictures of him, you know, it's just, I think when somebody's uh, just his ever present force, it's just every, it's there in your dreams. It's, it's in every sort of thought. And mm -hmm. um, you had to, I had to give myself a break from that. Actually, I, It took a while for me to be able to listen to him or, 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 or sort of see a picture of him without wincing for a while afterwards, just because it had been so sort of everything. Um, uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, he's uh, in my dreams. 
He still he still lurks around. He, he lurks around there from time to time. Well, I, it's funny because there's been a lot about him in the last few days, obviously, because it's his yeah. uh, birthday and then the anniversary of his death. And the BBC's done a lot on the weekend. And I watched um, half of the new the the new BBC doc Five Years. I don't know if you've seen that last five. I haven't years. seen it yet. No, it's pretty great. I mean, like, yeah, it's 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 cool. And there was a great um, radio play on over the weekend called Low, I think, mm. um, which went into some of the stuff that we talk about in our film about Terry and and things. And and um, so that that's nice that that yeah, our story is is happening at the same time as all these other uh, new reflections on David. Yeah, and this is a very interesting reflection on. on- David as well, Stardust. Um, there's a there's a slight element in the room with the movie, and in, in that there is no David Bowie music in the in the film. And I think mm. whenever it was first announced, people were a bit nervous about that. It's a time in his life when he hadn't fully found himself. It's a time in his life when he was obviously on this tour of the states and he couldn't he couldn't perform yeah. any of the songs for for one thing. Yeah. But did that did that help in a way? Because it's not. An impression. You're not trying to do that stars and eyes thing where you try and sound just like he did in his pomp. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this quite a lot uh, for, for a couple of years now, since yeah. since kind of thinking about why it was worth telling this story and what was important about our version of this story and what what its kind of valid, validity was, um, because we never expected to get the rights to the songs and never really from what i understand we never kind of pursued that and the story as you say is built around the idea that you don't need you don't need them for this story and mm. and 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 in, in in a really interesting way he's um he's kind of running away from his own material at this point the the, the man who sold the world is is quite a is a brilliant album, but it's really um, dark and complex. And he's been doing these kind of quite wildly varying, like almost like novelty singles, you know, of which Space Oddity is is one. Mm. And and then he la- and then he does the Man Who Sold the World, which is this. It's like uh, really dark. There's there's some heavy metal sort of themes. Uh, around this time that he does that gig with um, the hype with. Um, uh, Tony um, Visconti. Visconti, who's his lifelong producer, but he at this point Tony's playing in the band, and you, the, the shots of them on on stage at the Roundhouse, and Tony Visconti in his kind of super superhero high collar, and <laughs> it's that anyway. So it's it's basically it's like, I mean, I think there's a lot of weird stuff happening in pop culture. It, it, he he called, in fact, in the documentary last night, he's talking about that he thinks it was the first glam gig, the first explosion, really. And for whatever reason, it sort of doesn't it doesn't land, and that the album doesn't the man who sold the world isn't landing. Um, you know, Mark Bolan is is um, uh, bursting onto the scene, and Ryder White Swan is doing really well, and there's the beginning of this uh, glam thing. But David is it doesn't have the he sort of doesn't have hasn't got a character that that stuff will sort of sit on at this point. So he's. Anyway, so the, our film basically took this idea that he's this very lost, very confused um, character at this point, which everything that we read about him and, and, and the research we did and the stuff that I looked at and the, the, the clips of him performing, the little uh, clips of him doing 
a set at Glastonbury in 1969, 1970. He sounds like really fragile, really lost, you know, sweet and witty and, and um, the, the, the soul of the David that we know, but also just doesn't have that confidence and, and hasn't done anything that he's really, really proud of, I think. Mm. Um, I think posthumously, like we can look at the man who sold the world in the canon of his work and say it was this amazing, groundbreaking album, really cool, mm. ahead of its time and all that stuff. But it's sort of like an album that it showed his true spirit and and it was done with the with the with the spirit of exploration that album you know late scary monsters and low and all these yeah. you know amazing sonic experiments were done with but it's like you can't make your first big album on a on a major label you can't do that because you haven't created the you haven't create you haven't you know, cleared the landing strip for people to mm. kind of receive you yet. And then um, he's covering. It's really interesting because he's come fresh off, you know, all that uh, being re- obsessed with them. Um, uh, you know, Lindsay Kemp and the, and the mime stuff, and he uh, is talking about um, exploring his sort of vocal technique and. I think he wasn't very proud of his voice, and then he heard people like Anthony Newley and and um, interesting kind of music hall-y sort of singers doing very emotive, quavery things with their voice. And and anyway, so he mm. so he's 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 into that, and he's into he's singing um, uh, French chanson. He's singing Jacques Brel, and 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 also at the same time, uh, crucially, he's he's discovered quite recently he's discovered the velvet underground and the burgeoning the very early roots of the new york kind of um avant-garde and the new york punk scene and he went to see uh this andy warhol show that was touring in london he went to see this uh, thing called uh pork i think it's called with cross-dressing and thank god i pulled that out my bum um <laughs> pulled the pork out my bum. um so he's got all these things that he's interested in and he's not interested in himself. He's not proud of his, you know, the platform that is him at this point. He's yeah. just obsessed with all these things, and and jealous of Mark Bolan and what he's creating and manifesting. Yeah. And so we took this idea that, you know, he, he he it's a true thing. He landed in America without the right paperwork to play gigs, so he arrives. He's not allowed to play shows. We don't. I, I personally am not interested in seeing uh, people do impersonations of, of fantastic artists and singers. I'm in, I'm interested in the space around that. You know, when that brilliant film Control. Yeah. Um, it wasn't about um, uh, Sam Riley singing the songs as Ian Curtis because I'd rather listen to the Joy Division records. It's about the story around it, and so similarly to that film this this film our film is is interested in the um the space around who was david at this point yeah. and and not having the songs it means that there's no distraction from the fact that we're able to to go deeply into that and and i i hold to that thought that nobody's interested in seeing me sing uh, as david really i think the songs that we have in the film we've got the things that he was doing. We've got him singing Jack Brel and Anthony Newley and, um, the song he wrote and, as well. And the song that I wrote, which is yeah. supposed to be like a sort of a rip off of, um, David trying to be Lou Reed, which was quite fun. And I treated it like a, a continuation of my sort of character work that I got to write a song as David. So 
this is a long way of saying I think not having the songs, which was what we always thought would happen, and we didn't intend to have the songs, uh, was 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 a really creative leaping point. And it's just not that kind of film. It's not a jukebox musical. It's not trying to be. It's a much smaller, much darker film. Mm. And I think when when people reacted to the film. The idea of the film early on, there was this big bombastic trailer that our American sales sales people put up put out, and I think that was the wrong message. It looked a bit like they were trying to. They weren't. They were being, you know, they were doing their job, but it it kind of looked to to Bowie fans a bit like we were trying to upsell the film and make it like a, a thing riding on the coattails of Bohemian Rhapsody or Rocket Man, and it's just yeah. not in that genre. So. Our, our film is this small dark film and it's telling the truth of where David was at this moment. It's not it's not a kind of like air punchy, you know, greatest hits record. It's it's mm. it's a I think much more interesting, uh, introspective story about um this fragile young artist starting to get their thing together and find their voice basically. And the movie as well focuses on this relationship between David and, and Ron Oberman, played by Mark Marin, of course, and I imagine you spent a lot of time with Mark in that car, sometimes on the road, I'm guessing, sometimes in a in a studio. Uh, what yeah. was that experience like? A lot of the time in the studio. I mean, I think you can tell it's... Um, oh, it's sort of part of our, our sh- sort of uh, aesthetic for the film that it looks like uh, films made in the 70s, the way mm. we, we were shooting digitally, but we'd... Um, often using plates for the kind of car background. You know, we were, okay. we we were in Toronto. We couldn't get to New York and LA and all those places. So we were doing we were using kind of clever, um, you know, filmy things to 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 say that we were in wherever. <laughs> Is that a technical term, Johnny. Filmy <laughs> things, <laughs> clever filmy you know, things, flashing lights, all that stuff. <laughs> Men running around screaming. Um, yeah. I, Usual stuff. So we yeah we just spent a lot of time. That was really fun because. Because we were just there, like in in Canada, um, for a few weeks together, me and Mark. I, you know, I, I really love him. I think he's he's so good in the film, and I, I think, you know, they say casting is ninety percent of a performance or whatever. And um, I think Gabriel's uh, he he always wanted Mark for that role, and um, he just knew that there'd be the right balance between. Um, me and him and 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 the you know Mark's comedy chops and you know it's not a kind of out and out lol lol fest but yeah. he, just his dryness is so so good and and his Americanness and um, which is what the story's about it's about David's first trip to America and him being this he he lands wearing his man dress and uh, in 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 middle America and has to spend the night with the Oberman family, this very kind of, you know, middle-class um, American Jewish family. And mm. just the culture shock of that is really fun to imagine. And there's pictures of David at, the, at this dinner um, uh, that Ron took real, you can find them online, I think. And we tried to copy the, the, the look of the drawing room and the costumes and everything. So we were really trying to imagine what that was like. And Mark, Mark was just fantastic, and he's so funny, and and I lo- it's great company, and he's a fantastic musician as well. And we had a couple of guitars, so we'd often jam, and uh, we've continued talking about uh, music occasionally. Um, so that's <laughs> cool. Yeah, he's he's great. 
And just as grumpy as you would hope as well. <laughs> yeah, I had him on the podcast a couple of years ago. Uh, it was. It felt like, in terms of podcasting, it felt like inviting God in for a chat. It was. Yeah. It was interesting. I thought. Yeah, I did his podcast recently, and it was terrifying because I'm a big fan of it. But um, uh, yeah, he's he's the king. He's great. How was your experience on WTF? Um, it was cool. It was weird because it was during you know it was this year or last, you know the end of last year and and I was in my little studio recording and the internet was glitchy and I'd just been listening to him interview Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and them all cracking you know hilarious A-list jokes in <laughs> on some press junket thing in the same room so it was it was hard <laughs> hard to match the vibes but I think it was cool you know we just talked about music that's our that's our common ground I mean he we just he just made me laugh all the time we we shared a lot of car journey we were in a weird bit of um a, a kind of almost like a it's not quite it's sort of a suburb of toronto but it's this town that you know canadians would know a lot about called uh, hamilton south okay. of toronto and it's where it's quite it's a really cool place there's a burgeoning art scene there's music venues and stuff but it was it was like 44 degrees and it was um and it's quite downtrodden place it's quite down it you know it's, it's um uh it's it's quite run down basically and we were just seeing things that were quite shocking out of our window every day but but yeah it was it was great to be there with him and i love yeah i imagine also you know you're chatting music with mark but beast obviously came out a couple of years ago and was was just an incredible film um i imagine you and jesse buckley must have had lots of conversations about music as well yeah yeah we yeah we do and we're we're still great mates and we we hang out quite a lot and in the pandemic you know when we were allowed to we we were going on walks together in the marshes and this is i'm in my little music studio at the moment and um uh we've we've got uh plans to to kind of do some recording stuff here um but we share we share music back and forth all the time and and i love i just love her she's the best person in the world and an amazing actor obviously yeah and you know both of you got you know pipes oh. up the wazoo so to speak you know <laughs> again that's a technical phrase well you you pulled pork out of your bum i'm gonna say pipes up the wazoo um but, <laughs> you know beast was not the sort of movie that lends itself to a tie-in single <laughs> necessarily. no unfortunately no we did actually it's funny them somewhere on the cutting room floor where the you know the digital cloud version of mm. that is um there's a there there was there was a scene where <laughs> it was ridiculous i'm just trying to remember which song it was but she michael had written michael pierce the director and writer had written a scene where i'm driving her in my uh land rover <laughs> Um, up and down the coastal road, singing improbably, belting out along to the radio um, these like eighties power ballads, basically. And just I thought it was great, and I, it was a really playful scene. And I was, um, it was like a moment where you see Pascal <laughs> being really out of character. You're like, oh my god, I don't think <laughs> I can like him if he's into that music <laughs> so much. No, every word that's weird. Uh, but it didn't make into the film. That's a shame. That's a shame. But hey, it means that you guys have a free run now at the Christmas number one for next year. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to get on the phone to Jesse after this. <laughs> yeah, make it I happen. Need to get writing. <laughs> make it happen. And the last thing is, uh, what's next for you? I know that you're you're uh, you're you're going to play Dickie Greenleaf 
Has that yeah. happened or is it about to happen? What's the state no, of play with that? It, it, we haven't shot it yet because it was supposed to be last summer and, you know, um, in Italy. Yep. And um, so Steve's Aliens the, the, um, has adapted it from the book and it's it's kind of, I think, a truer version um of you know the story to the to the movie which was great but it's you know it's a it's a big book it's a big novel and and so this will be fun to, to go deeper into those characters um anyway that's that's going to be this summer we hope we just I, you know like a lot of things we're waiting for the world to open up um but yeah. i'm just we we shot i shot a, a small film in september which is um great to be able to do that there was a sort of window where things could happen and and uh it was a film that's written using um an old songs of mine in in the story uh kind of like a musical so we pre-recorded the songs uh had um will poulter and naomi aki and lydia wilson and me doing this kind of heist uh noir musical called the score amazing um written and directed by Malachi Smith and um, so I'm in the post for that at the moment because I'm composing the the actual the score score for the score as well and um, and and working on the mixes for the for the songs in the film so so that's 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 happening and I'm just in the middle of recording sessions for an album as well um, so trying to keep busy you're a busy um, man, Johnny. I try. Yeah, you we've try. got three kids as well, so this is the, you know the, the home sc- the schools being shut is like climbing up the walls time, but it's it's fun as well. We're, we're all you know getting along just about. You're making me look bad. All I do is a podcast, and uh, and you've you know you shot films and you're writing music and you've got three kids and it, you know you're pulling pork out of your bum. It's it's all happening. <laughs> I've got things up my wazoo. I um <laughs> I'm really um. I think I'm just, uh, yeah, I, I'm very jealous of you having your podcast. I like <laughs> the look of your room as well. I, I, I couldn't have a guitar just lying around in my, in my home. It would be, it would be like, it would be splinters and seconds. That's, that's the state <laughs> of our, our home situation. You know, it's, I think, yeah, I've always been a bit, um, I don't know. I get, I get excited about <laughs> making things. But uh, it, this year has also been cause for kind of reflecting on the need to um, chill, chill the hell out as well. Yeah, absolutely. So even though it sounds like I've been really busy, but there's, you know, a lot of this stuff is just me cooking things in the back of my mind and then suddenly it's time to go and record or film or whatever. Um, well, listen, I'm going to let you go and do that and get to work with Jesse on the Christmas number one for next year. It can't be that lad baby thing whatever the hell that is three four four years in a row it can't it can't be you, you need to step up the plate i don't know anything about that that's how nor did i know, i mean this is how out of touch i am pop culture <laughs> yeah, i'm yeah. gonna look it up now <laughs> yeah lad baby. i think it's lad baby or lad boy or something but anyway they've, they've had the christmas number one over the last three years and it's it's something needs to be done about it so uh Jesus. so step up to the plate mr johnny flynn uh, it's been an absolute pleasure sir thank you so much indeed all right thank you so much <laughs> cheers. cheers chris thank you right, take care bye Okay, so that was Johnny Flynn, and we will be talking about Stardust later in the show. But now it's time to talk about this week's movie news. What's been happening, folks? There's a lot of TV news this week, actually, oh, which God. I will, of course, be saving for the Pilot TV podcast, which will be going out on Monday. However, I do feel it is my absolute duty to mention, especially to you, Chris, that uh, we have some bad Lincoln Lawyer news. So they have talked 
about bringing the Lincoln Lloyd to TV for a very long time. It was going to go to CBS. It was then looking likely that it would go to Amazon. And that would be extremely exciting because then you have the possibility, the tantalizing possibility of a Bosch Lincoln Lawyer crossover with mm-hmm. Harry Bosch and Mickey Haller in the same show. However, however, the Lincoln Lawyer has gone to Netflix, which makes that rather unlikely no. and has made me sad. Yes, very sad. So um, Mickey Haller has been cast. It's uh, Manuel Garcia Rulfo who's going to be playing the role. Uh, and I'm sure he'll be great, but he would have been even better if he'd been able to share the screen with Titus Welliver. That sucks. I know, it does. This is, of course, based on the Michael Connolly books, set in the Bosch-iverse, as I've decided to call it. But, uh, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a real shame. I love Bosch. I think it's fantastic. I think uh, Welliver's fan- just amazing as that character. Um, and I think it would have been a brilliant first episode of this if you could have had, like, because Bosch is ending, if you could have had, like, a passing of the torch and then had Bosch, you know, continually popping up in this, as he often does in the, in the books. But, alas, that's not going to happen. That's such a shame. It's right there. Unless, of course, you know, the way that, you know, DC and Marvel have collaborated in the past, the mm. way that Wizard and Chips would occasionally team up with Royal Rovers to have crossover issues. <laughs> uh, Maybe Netflix and Amazon, this is the thing that can bring them together. A bipartisan TV show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very, you know, very, very much Christmas Day and World War One. Yeah. Reaching across the aisle to bring those <laughs> iconic characters together. Yeah. It's for the good, for the good of us all. Make it happen, you fuckers. <laughs> that should <Yeah>. help. <laughs> Yeah, yes, that that's, will, uh... that's the kind of conciliatory language that will <laughs> that will really make this thing come together, Chris. That's a, that's such a shame. What do you think of the casting? I mean, I have to say, I I was I was clinging to a hope, uh, hope against hope that maybe <laughs> right, they might right, get right. Matthew McConaughey to to play the yeah. character again. Because uh, you know, my love for so Lincoln Lawyer is is yeah. well documented. Yeah, yeah, he was fantastic. So that's a tough hat to follow. That is, yeah. Maybe that's why you get a relative unknown to to kind of step oh, up. He's and, not unknown. Is he not? Not really. No. Just to me. Okay. Well done, me. Have you not seen The Magnificent Seven or Six Underground? He only does movies with numbers in the title. Apparently. I have. I have seen both of them. So the fact that I still consider him an unknown is is perhaps well, it's testament to I'm those really movies. I'm really surprised I mean, because he's very much up your alley, so to speak, in golly. in terms of his his looks. He's <laughs> Manuel Garcia Rulfo. Yeah. He's a very handsome chap, He's Helen. very handsome. Like, I'm not saying he's not handsome. I'm just saying, like, he's maybe, you know, not as big as Matthew McConaughey. I don't think that's controversial. Yeah. So, anywho. Hey, did you see that Jensen Ackles won an award this week? Was it for best nipples? <laughs> <laughs> His weren't out in the finale, guys. Anyway. Um, that <laughs> wasn't the me, only piece of... <laughs> that wasn't the only piece of uh, of big TV news this week. No, There's also wasn't. the Sex in the City TV revival. <gasps> yes, yes the three HBO out Max. of four. Yeah, I mean this this the, the the only bad news about this is this is clearly going to either start with or reference uh, Samantha's funeral at some point. Like she's going to have died of cancer in the intervening years, isn't I mean, she? I don't think that's the only bad thing potentially first of all and secondly maybe yes but she could equally be off in LA having fun having cancelled right? all of them for being terrible people yes yeah uh, I mean, maybe she's done that I think there is a lot this is interesting because the trepidation I've seen about this online has mostly been coming from Sex and the City fans yeah because the movies and they're are quite saying it's yeah the movies were I mean, especially the second movie was yeah, one of the yeah, worst things yeah. I've mm-hmm. ever seen and um <laughs> The film, the the TV show was was groundbreaking, but kind yeah. of of its time, and I think elements of it certainly have not aged well. Its treatment of race, for example, its treatment of gay people or LGBT issues in general. So, if you bring it back, you have to figure out a way to 
hopefully address that without, you know, completely changing it into a different show. And you already have the big issue of a missing Samantha. So yeah. mm. that's a that's going to be a tough tightrope uh, to walk, I would have thought. And while you might think, well, that's fine, you can introduce a new character who can maybe solve some of those representation issues while filling in Samantha's role, there you have to be really, really careful that you don't fall into horrific stereotypes, for example. So the over-sexualized black woman, for example, is not something that would necessarily help Helen, matters. Sex in the City has never trucked in stereotypes. How hmm. dare you? <laughs> How well, that's exactly dare. it, isn't it? So you have to be really, really careful. So yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm obviously I'm. I'll watch it, but I'm not without trepidation. I'm, I'm very much on the no Samantha, no party uh, train, and mm. this may surprise mm. you that I'm a fan of the show, but I, if I am, because my wife loves it, and I sort of watched it with her, and she was like, "Oh, this is great." Mm. I just hope that fucker Steve doesn't come back. I can't stand Steve. <laughs> Fuck Steve. <laughs> Fuck Steve. Wet lettuce of wow. a human being. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I, mean, I, I see too much of myself in Steve, so I can't really. <laughs> I can't be having anything to do with that to character. Home. Too yes. close to home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, lots of lots of big questions. Lots of big questions. Mm. Will any of uh, Will any of Carrie's former loves be coming back into this? You know. And mm. what's 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 up with Big? What's up with Burger? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, uh, there was also some other news in terms of TV. I swear mm. to Christ, this is a film podcast this week. I'm so sorry. Uh, the Empire Podcast it, is brought to you by the Parlour TV Podcast. <laughs> this is infiltration from within this week. Uh, Insecure, the Issa Rae show, is going to finish on uh, HBO. Uh, it's going to have one more season, this fifth and final season. We had the showrunner. Apprentice Penny on the show last year because he wrote and directed that uh, really lovely film that's on Netflix, Uncorked. Mm. And so he's going to be involved with that as well. So it's going to be wrapping up. Um, so I need to catch up with Insecure because uh, I've only seen the first season so far, but I really, really liked it. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, uh, there well. is film news. Oh, no. But before we get on to the film news, Helen, there is <laughs> no more Helen TV news. No, Helen. <laughs> no, Helen. There will be no, there will be film, no news. film news. No, oh, no, no. no. no Moratorium on film news. Talk more Absolutely about not. TV. And that is that uh, Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson are going to be making Marvel's Moon Knight, which is yes. pretty exciting stuff. The directors of The Endless uh, and Synchronic. Um, and, and you know, these guys are amazing. If you've seen The Endless, it's fantastic. I've not seen Synchronic yet, but I hear incredibly good things about it. Uh, but they're bold. They're very sort of audacious uh, filmmakers. And, and this is a hell of a gig for them to get. So props to them. I haven't seen Synchronic yet. I will be seeing it soon because I think I'm actually talking to Benson and Moorhead soon for a spoiler special podcast about Synchronic. Mm. I hear very, very good things about that indeed. But yeah, they're 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 major dudes and um, very, very excited to see them doing that uh, also. Can we talk about movies now? Is there any, Thank any, God, movie, yes. any movie news? Darren Aronofsky um, is making a, an adaptation for the movie of the play The Whale which is about a 600-pound man who's basically eating himself to death in his apartment. And he's cast Brendan Fraser uh, as the lead in that. So, uh, yeah. It's just I, a shame. When you said the well, I thought I just, all I could think of was shanty talk. Like I thought it was going to be that kind of, you know. <laughs> sea shanties. Who knew, you soaked know? tale of, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've, I think we all have the urge to go whaling right now, don't we? I mean, not in terms Very of killing so. whales, not no, in terms no, of killing but, whales, you know. but just to be out in the open oh ocean God. and yeah. away from all and of the singing. shit. 
Yeah. yeah. And singing. Yeah. Singing, singing with the whales, singing. maybe. Singing <laughs> without risking, you know, transmitting yes. disease to everyone. So it's, That's it's right. pretty cool. Yeah. Although, frankly, you'd be, you know, expectorating while singing. So your other sailors would have to be wearing masks. Well, that's what I'm saying. But you know, in in my little fantasy about my sea shanties, then there's no there's no COVID. So. Is it just you on this boat, Helen? I'm confused. No, there's like close harmony singing, just no ah, COVID. So we don't have to worry about it. With COVID immune sailors, right? Got it. Yes, got it. Exactly. Yeah. Anywho, that's a glimpse into my mind. There's also, <laughs> and I'm I'm really surprised you didn't lead with this, James. Aaron Sorkin news. There is, yes, yes. What four-star masterpiece is he working on now, <laughs> Helen? Well, he's working on Being the Ricardos, which is, of course, about Lucille Ball and her husband, Desi Arnaz. Um, and he has cast Nicole Kidman mm. and Javier Bardem in mm. these roles. Now, again, I have to say, the uh, the takeaway on Twitter was actually pretty negative about this, despite this being a really good group of people on on paper. I think there's a slight concern about maybe some of Aaron Sorkin's female characters, and maybe uh, that might not 100% do right by Lucille Ball. So, who knows? James, refute this immediately. Well, I mean, obviously his portrayal of Molly Bloom was an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, four-star masterpiece. So I have every confidence that Lucille Ball, Lucille Ball is in very, uh, very safe hands. He won't, he won't balls it up. <laughs> no. <laughs> but look, let's hope that, that he does a fantastic job because um, this is about basically I Love Lucy, which was their hit show. So Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball were married for, I think, most of the show's run. They did get divorced eventually. Mm-hmm. And their um, company together produced the show. She was one of the very first sort of star producers on TV. It was really kind of groundbreaking at the time. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how they negotiate those issues now, I suppose. Helen, you're not wrong. It will be interesting to see how that goes. (laughs) I'm sorry, do you have something more specific to say? (laughs) (laughs) Not really. I was trying to buy time to look for a story. I found one. I found one. I found one. So Kevin Feige's uh, Star Wars movie has a writer, and it is Michael Waldron, who also wrote uh, the Loki series, which is going to be coming up very, very soon Mm. on Disney+. And so this is interesting. Nothing's been announced about this officially since it was first uh, mooted a couple of years ago. But uh, so Feige is going to be producing a Star Wars movie. How that's going to fit in with the larger Star Wars story or what's happening in The Mandalorian or what's happening with Patty Jenkins' Rogue Squadron. Is this going to be a full-on spin-off? Is it going to be out there on its own? Is it going to be the start of him doing for Star Wars what what he's done for the MCU? Who knows? But Michael Waldron is going to write that. So... All right. Now, this is something, I don't know. I know you guys like your musicals. Jimbo, you like musicals, right? I I enjoy a musical, yes. You, you enjoy a musical. But I don't believe you're a Monty Python fan. I'm not. I, I as you know, struggle with, what's it called? Humour. Humour, uh, yeah. But in particular, the kind of Python-esque style of surrealist humour never quite landed with me. That said, I it's love weird Life that of Python Brian, did Python-esque so. humour, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> God, it was fortuitous that yeah. that worked out. Yeah, it was, uh, it was handy. <laughs> what are the odds? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, but bar bar life of Brian, I'm not uh, I'm not wildly enthused. Right. Did you ever see Spam a lot? No. Good oh, it's, talk. it's good though. Finland, yeah. Finland, Finland, Finland. Great, great song. Finland, Finland. Well, I have the Monty Python Sing soundtrack, so I'm familiar with the song. This is the song that goes like this. Great, great musical number. See, you know, not all 
the songs from that Monty Python, in fact, only that one really, uh, are in Spamalot, Jimbo. Mm. But Spamalot's fun. Spamalot, of course, based on Monty Python and the Holy Grail, a musical written by Eric Idle. And um, I saw it a few years ago mm. at the Ambassador, I want to say. What's the one opposite the Corinthia Theatre in London? Which do you one's remember, the Corinthia? Do you remember, do you remember, I thought I'd have to explain what London is every second. <laughs> do you remember, do you remember like the, the big centre of the, the, the place that you used to go into to, to do the stuff with the people? Vaguely. And there was a hotel, Corinthia Hotel, yep. still there, I believe. And it's opposite a theatre. And that's where I saw Spamalot. Oh, it's also okay. where I saw a not great production of Glengarry Glen Ross with Christians later, but yeah, hey ho, I can't remember what I that saw called. Aaron Sorkin's uh, A Few Good Men with Rob Lowe around there. I don't know if it was in that exact theatre, but really, the, the one yeah. down by Embankment. I don't know. Yes, down that's right what, by right by Embankment. That's where I saw James McAvoy's Cyrano de Bergerac. Really? Mm. <laughs> um, did you also see the play? Did you, you <laughs> ran into him in an alley and he just kind of flashed his Cyrano at you? <laughs> Oh dear, the Empire Podcast would like to make would like to make it clear that James McAvoy does not go around flashing random film journalists in alleys near Embankment Tube Station. I mean, that denial got really specific. Got really, really, really. Yeah. You should really probably quickly. just rewind it clear, a little bit. Oh, to be clear, <laughs> Helen only saw his Cyrano. She did not see his Bergerac. Well, his dum dum down. Well, if you if you touch it, you get stung because. What, nettles? Nettles, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, the point of this is, the point of this is, this is a Spamalot movie, it's on the way, and it is, uh, it has been picked up by Paramount Pictures. So uh, it's going to happen. So uh, get acquainted, Jimbo. Have you ever even seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Yes, I have seen it a very long time ago. I I very, very strongly recall that I was bored and therefore doing other things, but uh, I have seen it. (sighs) Oh my God. I, I didn't like the meaning of life either. I remember well, that. No one likes the meaning of life. Yeah, the meaning yeah. of life isn't as good, but Holy Grail is s- yeah. special. It's the Holy Grail of Monty Python movies. I know that obviously it belies the fact that I'm friends with you, Chris, but silly humour just doesn't really do it for me. <laughs> like, it's too silly. <laughs> it, they, they would not deny that, so we, yeah. we can yeah. really argue. But it's really smart, silly humour. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It is smart. And I enjoy smugness, and they can be quite smug, but, uh, you know... Uh, yeah, that doesn't work for me. Anyway, run away, run away from this news story and into other news stories. And um, news stories we maybe have to tiptoe around a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons. And um, Army Hammer has <laughs> stepped away from his role. <laughs> Army Hammer has stepped away from his role in Shotgun Wedding, which is a rom-com in which he was going to star with Jennifer Lopez, but he has stepped away to deal with allegations, shall we say, involving his private life. Shall we say? And should we end it there? I think it's probably best. Okay. I I particularly enjoy, I particularly enjoy Variety, the trade papers, attempts to describe what these Instagram messages contain while still being Variety about it. It is it is a beautiful act of kind of grammatical gymnastics as they try and navigate it. I, I highly recommend it. Yes. If you know the details of this, if you've been following us on Twitter and uh, other social media networks over the last week or so, then you'll know why we're tiptoeing around this. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. 
And we should also mention as well, uh, and again, we have to be very careful what we say about this, uh, but Ray Fisher has confirmed he is not going to return as Cyborg in the upcoming The Flash movie. He has issued a statement on Twitter about this. It's a very, very long statement. Uh, If you want to go and check that out, you can read it. Uh, He's at Ray8Fisher, the number 8A, at Ray8Fisher on Twitter. And there's a very, very long and complicated history here. Of course, Ray Fisher has made allegations about misconduct um, on the part of certain filmmakers, including... Joss Whedon and Jeff Johns and the current president of DC Films, Walter Hamada, uh, regarding their conduct uh, during the reshoots on Justice League. And it's been a very, very interesting story to watch. Helen, as our legal correspondent, (laughs) help. Uh, Yeah, no, well, the problem is... It's difficult to talk about this because a lot of allegations have been made of, of you know, racism, frankly, and and bullying and misconduct. And um, Warner Brothers has, they say, investigated, but has not released the results of that investigation publicly. So we don't know what they concluded was well-founded or not. We don't know what happened. We don't know very much at all. But we do know that Ray Fisher is not happy with the outcome of that, that he said mm-hmm. he was not willing to return to appear in the flash um given that some of these people specifically hamada were still involved with warner brothers um and that has presumably at least partly led to this decision now so but of course in his statement he says very clearly that warner brothers has decided to remove me from the cast of the flash i strongly disagree with their decision but it is one that is unsurprising so you could see that there's an argument to be made that he spoke up about something that mm-hmm. needed to be spoken up about mm-hmm. and is being further silenced as a result. Uh, so he was brave enough to stick his head above the parapet and has paid the price for that. Yeah, it's clear that something has gone horribly wrong with with all of this, with the whether it's, you know, with the investigation or whether it's much, much earlier and much more serious, it's it's unclear or both. Um but yeah, this is this is not a good look for for Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. I mean, and also one thing we can agree on is he is an excellent, well-rounded character. So you know that's a, it's, a, it's a great loss of cinema. But uh, he was never given a chance. I, I, genuinely, I think he was never given a chance, and we will find out. You know, irrespective, of, I'm talking about the character here of, of Cyborg, okay, and Ray yeah. Fisher's portrail of him, Rosalind, because it's, not, yeah. it's very Cyborg's difficult. Cyborg's failings are not his fault. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. very difficult to talk about what's going on off camera, so to speak. Because uh, we don't know the full ins and outs, for one thing. But, you know, the situation in Justice League meant that the cyborg we saw was not the cyborg that we were meant to see. We will see that version of it, certainly, in Zack Snyder's Justice League. Another reason why I'm very interested to see how that pans out whenever we mm-hmm. see it. And I guess a couple of months, uh, it's going to be uh, there in all, in all four hours of it. And it feels like, you know... Again, really trying to tread carefully here. It feels like he was never really given a, a fair crack here, and it's a it's a shame. It's a shame because we could say yes, and in, in the Justice League that exists right now, that character doesn't work for me. But it doesn't mean that he no. wouldn't have worked in Zack Snyder's movie, and it doesn't mean he wouldn't have worked in the Flash movie. And you know whether they recast a character or move on completely now, it's going to be 
one to keep an eye on, that's for sure. But uh, but go and check it out. Check out Ray Fisher's statement at Ray8Fisher on Twitter. And again, as if you've been following the Army Hammer stuff, and if you've been following the Ray Fisher, this situation unfolding over the last few months, then you'll know why it's very, very difficult to talk about on a show like this. But yeah, great shame. Great shame. And one last thing to talk about um, in terms of the DCEU is that Joe Barton, who is the guy who created mm. the wonderful Giri Haji. Giri Haji. Uh, uh, he has replaced Terence Winter as the showrunner and head writer on The Batman, which is going to be the HBO Max series that will be a spinoff of, and Helen's getting a headache here, oh, The God. Batman. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, just <laughs> But to- it won't have The Batman in The Batman. What? What? The Batman, Helen, is a spin-off of the Batman, but it doesn't have the Batman. What it does have is it has people who are Batman adjacent. So it's Gotham, but not Gotham. Hopefully a good Gotham. And the fact that Joe Barton, who is a, an excellent chap uh, and a very, very good writer, uh, terrible choice of football team, but not much you can do about that. Uh, he's a Spurs fan. Um, but his involvement is good. Okay, so just to be clear, just yes. to, just for my own edification, we have the Robert Pattinson, the Batman. Yes. And this will be a spin-off of the Batman with everybody yes. but the Batman. That's correct. And then we also have Michael Keaton in The Flash. And Ben Affleck. And Ben Affleck as yes. the Batman. Yes. And, and they're over there as well. And presumably Ben Affleck won't stick around, but Michael Keaton, we think, might. And there's been rumours this week that they might be planning some kind of Batman Beyond thing with him, where he basically trains up a new Batman. So, But that Batman wouldn't be the Robert Pattinson no, Batman. No, it wouldn't be the Robert Pattinson Batman. It would be whole other Batman. So, I mean, you remember my song about too many Spider-Men. I would like to now suggest that the writers of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt get back together and write one about too many Batman, because this to me feels like too many Batman. Maybe that's (laughs) controversial, but also maybe like they have a lot of other DC characters, like a lot. And wouldn't it be nice to maybe do, I don't know, anyone else? (laughs) Just a thought, anyway, to leave you with. Maybe, maybe. But I will say, if they do a sort of Batman Beyond kind of Bat Family thing, we have not seen that before. And my sister, for one, who is a huge Batman fan, would specifically like to see that Batman on screen. The Batman who compulsively adopts orphans and wards, trains them into lethal killing machines, and then, you know, gets hurt when they're hurt. But listen, uh, Joe Barton being attached to this thing is a good sign. So fingers crossed mm-hmm. that this is good. And even if you get lost in the continuity of it all, then you know if each individual part is good and we can enjoy that, then sure. we're all winners here, right? We're all winners. One last piece of news to finish off with, and it's very, very sad news. It's the news that the great British director Michael Apted died last week at the age of 79. He directed a whole bunch of films over his career, including Stardust, not the one that's out this week, but the the 1974, I think, movie with David Essex, maybe 1972. He also directed The Coal Miner's Daughter with Sissy Spacek. He directed Gorky Park with Lee Marvin. He directed a Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough, which I really, really like, with Pierce Brosnan in 1997. 
1999. He was the, that was the third one, uh, the third of the Brosnan movies, 1999. Um, and he directed a, a number of movies over an incredible career, but he is perhaps best known or will be best remembered for his involvement with the groundbreaking, now take this Richard Linklater, groundbreaking 7-Up TV series, which was a show that... Um, well, it's now, I think the latest one is 63 up. So it followed a bunch of kids when they were seven years old and then returned to track them every seven years or so. So we've had 14 up, 21 up. Stay with me here, Maz fans. 28, 35, 42, 49, 56, and 63. There Yay. you go, Maz teachers. I did need a tutor <laughs> at school, but what can you do? Um, and that was an incredible, incredible documentary series that he was involved with and he didn't direct the first series seven up but he did come back uh he was involved with it and he directed every single series after that mm. um but yeah I, I you know i'm 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 a big fan of a, of a lot of his movies as well and uh, never had the never had the pleasure never had the pleasure of interviewing him did you guys i ever? don't i don't think so i I think I might have interviewed somebody for Amazing Grace, but I don't think it was Michael Apted at the time. Um, and he did Rome as well. He did the, the the TV show Rome, which was bloody fantastic, mm. um, as well as Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which wasn't a bad Narnia movie. Mm. But yeah, he'd been doing uh, Bloodline and Ray Donovan of late, uh, so he'd kept going really f until well 2019. So. Mm, incredible of career. Sex. Yeah, yeah, incredible career. And Gorillas in the Mist, I don't think we mentioned. We didn't. Fantastic film. We didn't mention Gorillas in the Mist. What else did he direct? He directed uh, Class Action, which is a, a fun Gene Hackman legal drama, Thunderheart with Val Kilmer. Nell. Nell, absolutely. Extreme Measures, which got a lot of flack at the time, but I quite enjoyed it. Again, Gene Hackman, Hugh, Hugh Grant moved out of his comfort zone back in the day when we went, no, Grant, get back in your light romantic comedy box. You you, you have no more colours to you, sir. And, he, and then he's proved us all wrong, hasn't he, over the over the years. Um, and the World's Not Enough is a, is a fun Bond movie. I, I read an interview uh, with Apted this week where he said, you know, as was the case with a lot of Bond directors, that, you know, he was basically not in charge of all the big action set pieces that was handed over to the second unit to, to work on. But uh, that movie still has a lot of fun to it. It's got that great opening sequence that we talked about only, I think, last week at the O2 in London. It's got uh, Robert Carlyle as a bad guy. It's got Sophie Marceau as the as the, the, the badder guy. And it's good fun. It's good stuff. It's also the movie that has, and I thought Christmas only comes once a year as the yes. as the capper. <laughs> Which is quite the line. It is quite the line. Uh, I saw him in Spies Like Us. I watched it over the Christmas period with my wife. She'd never seen it before. And that movie, as with all John Landis movies, is re just filled, replete with cameos from other directors. Uh, there's a young Joel Cohen. There's a young Sam Raimi. There's, you know, Frank Oz. There's, uh, you know, usual suspects that John Landis would cram into his movies. Michael Apted is in that film. If you want to go and see uh, Michael Apted in Spies Like Us. Michael Apted, who passed away at the age of 79. Very, very sad. Time now for our second and final guest this week. And a, uh, he is Kingsley Ben Adir, who is a fast rising British actor and he will be rising even faster, I think, after One Night at Miami comes out. It's going to be on Amazon Prime Video. We're going to be talking about it in a few minutes on the reviews section of the show. Uh, it is a 
movie based on a real encounter, fictional depiction of a real encounter, the night after Cassius Clay won the World Heavyweight Championship back in 1964, and afterwards he retired to a motel room, didn't party, as you thought he might. Instead, he hung out with three very famous friends. One, Sam Cooke, the soul singer. Two, Jim Brown, the American football player, turned movie star, one of the Dirty Dozen, of course. And three, Malcolm X. Now, you might think this is fertile ground for a movie, and it certainly is. It is based on Kemp Powers, who co-directed and co-wrote Soul. His debut play turned into a movie directed by Regina King, and it is a fantastic movie. We'll talk about it more in a few minutes. But Kingsley Benadire, he is from London. He's been on the rise for a couple of years now. Jimbo, you'll have seen him, of course, in the second season of the OA. The OA, yes. He mm-hmm. was fantastic in that. The second and sadly last Yes, indeed. He hasn't done a lot of movies uh, so far. He was in Noel, which is on Disney+, Plus. but One Night in Miami, I think, is going to change his career. He's fantastic in this as Malcolm X, and I caught up with him last week on Squadcast. He was kind enough to talk to us on a Saturday on his what should have been his day off, uh, so thank you for that. And we had an interesting chat about playing the man who was Malcolm X and not the myth that is Malcolm X, amongst other things. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star of One Night in Miami, Mr. Kingsley Ben Adir. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing really good, man. How's it going? And not too bad, not too bad. All things considered, thank you for asking. We're in the world without giving away your postcode and your exact address. Are you at the moment? I believe North London. Is this correct? I am in Kentish Town, born and bred. Kentish Town. Yeah. Not yeah, a million right. miles away from the Empire office, which is in Camden. Oh, there you go. Neighbours, proper neighbours. Yeah. In the same yeah, power. proper neighbours. I haven't been there for a year. What's what's it like? Have you have you, have you been keeping the place tidy for us when we come back? It's pretty. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of it's nice and quiet at the moment. It's really peaceful on on sort of my my one walk a day. You know, the streets are the streets are pretty empty, but you know, the streets are clean. <laughs> we're, keep, we're keeping it yeah. nice and tidy for you. <laughs> Good, excellent. <laughs> See that you do. And uh, so, presumably, you chose to stay in London. You know, whenever, whenever lockdown happened, whenever the pandemic happened. Uh, you know, you're are, are you based here permanently, or did you make a decision? Okay, I'm going to be here in London, not, for example, in LA. No, L- L- London's my home, and you know, it's where it's it's where London is where it is is where I'm from, and I spent a lot of time in New York and, and LA. I was in LA just before. The pandemic sort of kicked off and I thought, you know what, it's probably a good idea. I get home and, and you know, I'm, I'm close to the people I, I know and love and, and uh, <laughs> my apartment here. So I got back, I got back just uh, maybe like a week before we, we went into a, a very serious lockdown and I've been here since. And obviously London plays a really interesting part in the history of One Night in Miami because it well, played the, at the, the Dunmore Warehouse. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, a the Cooper fight, but also yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's 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 also got the, you know, it, it it premiered at the Donmar Warehouse. Did you see that production by any chance? Do you know what I didn't see? Arinze Kenny, I think he played Sam Cook, who's a you know a good friend of mine, and, and we worked together before. But I, I didn't see the production. Um, I think I was on stage at the same time, so obviously I couldn't I couldn't make an evening or a matinee because we were we were all sort of busy at exactly the same time. But I, I definitely have a, a strong memory of when it was and how well it was received and remember hearing how brilliantly all the boys did. So there was something that was kind of on your radar and then whenever the, the movie 
comes around, uh, it's something that you're automatically interested in. And I, and I know from reading and, and listening to interviews with you about this movie that it wasn't initially Malcolm X that you were in the running to play. It was it was Cassius Clay. It was suggested someone, not sure my agent or, or, or the casting director, someone suggested that I put something on tape, put Cassius Clay on, on tape for Regina. And I mean, there's a real excitement. There was a real excitement about this script um, in the industry and in the acting community. And uh, and I remember being like really buzzing when it came through, and, and I read it, and oh, there was just something about the conversation between Malcolm and Sam in this film that like I really connected with and then i read it again for cash and i was like and i tried to like i tried to like read the scenes and started learning the lines to put cash on tape for audition and it, something just didn't feel right i just i think i felt a little bit too old or i didn't connect to the youthfulness or the i just i was just like there's got to be someone else much better suited to play in this role than me but i i i was very very clear about how I felt about the role of Malcolm and said to my team, you know, if, if, if the role becomes available, you know, I'd love to put something down on tape for Regina yeah. and then cut to four and a half months later. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's what happened. The role became available and, and uh, I got a call saying, would you like to audition for Malcolm X uh, to pl- uh, for Regina King? And I was like, yes, I most certainly will. <laughs> And so, what do you remember of that, of that audition? What was the uh, what was the audition piece? Oh, Regina wanted like fifteen, twenty pages. She wanted the scene. She wanted the the from when we come back down into the room from the roof all the way through, and then she wanted the scene around the bed at the end. So there was a there was a lot of of line learning and preparation to do. And they wanted the tape in twenty four hours. I was like, you guys must be out of your minds. There is no possible way I can prepare Malcolm X in 24 hours and do that. So I, I asked for the weekend and said like, I need at least three days on this. And, um, and yeah, so they, they extended the, the deadline and, and, uh, and then, yeah, just went, it just did a deep dive really into, into Malcolm and just started looking at who he was and what was going on for him at that time. Dialect, just just the world. Really, you do as much as you can in those as those three days uh, as possible. Um, and yeah. then I sent the tape over to Regina, and, and we really we jumped on a Skype call that night. She responded to to the to the tapes, and I was just very like clear with her. I was like, "Listen, this is this is fifty sixty percent there max. You know, I need time. I need to lose weight. I need to prepare. I need twenty forty hours on with dialect coaches. I need I need a, I need." I need to prepare this role. Like you can't just you can't just wake up and do Malcolm X. And because Regina's such an incredible act- actor, like she knows she knows that. And so, so many of our conversations over the, that couple of weeks before she cast me were were about were her checking in with what I was going to do and like did I you know did we connect on who Malcolm sort of needed to be in this story and. And it was it just got clearer and clearer and clearer that we were we were really both on the same page in our, in our understanding of how important the vulnerability of these men were in this piece, and also how important yeah. it was to explore Malcolm as a as a father and a husband and a friend and someone who who really knew that his his life was was about to be in serious danger and and and, mm. and what that might have felt like. Did you did you talk to people who were 
there or around the hotel, the motel that night. Because uh, I, I, when I was preparing for this, I saw a really interesting short video of Jim Brown returning to the historic Hampton Hotel for the first time in what fifty-seven years, fifty-six years, mm. I guess. By the time he by, by the time he went there, um, so did you try and talk to him? Did you talk to anybody else who was who was around there at that time? I didn't. I didn't talk to Jim, and I kind of understood coming into this project that this is Kemp Powers sort of reimagining of what might have been said. It's, it's an imaginary conversation and it's, and it's an interesting conversation. It's a sort of imaginative exploration of a conversation that, 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 that may have happened. And uh, so, no, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't worry too much about finding out from Jim <laughs> what they actually spoke about. But my concern really was investigating what the actual stakes were for all of them at this time. And, and the more you look into it, the more you realize like, wow, Kemp was really onto something here because there were such monumental changes going on for all of them. But for, for Malcolm specifically, you know, he, his, his relationship with the nation of Islam and that, uh, his bond with Elijah Muhammad, his mentor and father figure, it was really, Mm. You know, it, it was crumbling and, and it was coming to an end. And I, I feel like I feel like the changes that were going on for Malcolm at this time on this night were really, really, it was such an interesting opportunity from an acting point of view to kind of explore those stakes and, you know, and, and see, see how we could best try and, and, and represent him in a new way, you know, in a different way. And it, it's really interesting because obviously you're also playing, you have to play Malcolm X, the man. Was that difficult in a way? Interesting, for sure. I think, like, I think that's to do with understanding your acting relationships going in, in and that's part of the, the preparation, is understanding who you are in relation to, like, who you're playing with. And I wasn't so much, you know, f focused on, like, what Malcolm represented on a, on a symbolic level. It's really not important in the playing of it. I think sort yeah. of imaginatively speaking, yeah, it's, you, you need to know everything about him but i i, I it was pretty it's pretty clear from reading and from looking into the world that malcolm definitely has the most status in the room and i feel like sam's probably next and part of the friction that happens in the film between them is that they are probably the closest in terms of in terms of age or, or seniority um and i think just really investing in that reality like investing in just investing in understanding like that, you know, Cash was really the little brother in the room and Malcolm and Sam connecting mm. on a different level and what my relationship to Jim was. So I think just getting a just getting really specific about what age they all were and where they were all at individually and then sort of deciding between each other what those relationships were in terms of, of status. But like uh, in terms of playing the myth and playing the man, I think that's really a question of, of, of taste and Regina's, I don't think Regina was ever going to cast anyone who was going to come in and, and think that it would be a good idea to try and do a, a caricature or, or an impersonation um, because, yes. you know, she gets, she gets it and she's, she's, she's got great, you know, you know, taste when it comes to her work. Um, <laughs> that sounds kind of slightly <laughs> arrogant saying she's got great taste because she cast me. But no, I mean that, you know, there's a difference between people who, who think that it's a good idea to go in and play a caricature or, or an imitation and just sort of understanding from an acting point of view that it's just not interesting to do that. Um, 
So listen, you can say it yeah. as well. She's got great taste because she cast you. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Lean into well, it, man. Lean into it. Listen, I'll leave that. I'll leave that for now. <laughs> but say, for example, uh, you had been not only not only had you seen the Dolmer Warehouse production, but say, for example, you'd been cast in the play. I think you would have had a very different acting experience because um, I've I've read you know that Kemp basically just took it apart and reconstructed it and the first line of the play doesn't come in in the movie until about 40 minutes in oh wow and obviously he's expanded it and there's you know he opens it out a little bit as well um but in terms of the acting experience did once it is the four of you whether it's in the room or on the rooftop did you and regina treat it as a play did you shoot it in long takes what was what was our process like for you guys Boy, that's a that's a, a big question, and, and and that's a big question because yeah, I feel like I I definitely in my preparation over Christmas was like I need to come in on day one and know this thing back to front. Like I wanted to, I I, I prepared it like I was going into to to shoot a play because to to perform a play because I also understood that like well I, I think for me I was like the emotional undercurrent but the, the the specificity of like malcolm's emotional journey and where each of those punches land is so important to like the arc of the story overall so i didn't i wanted to just be i wanted to have a really clear sort of roadmap in my mind to come in and share with regina as soon as i got there and just be like this is and also knowing that we were going to be shooting completely out of order so you know we'd jump right into a heated debate and then we'll go back to the beginning and then we'll cut to the like it was we were really shooting all over the place so so much of the concentration was about like staying on top of what that emotional journey you know was but also kind of staying open to the possibility of shifting it and changing it around and it's just really sort of intricate conversations between regina and i just keep it keeping on top of that and, and regina did you know that was you know we were in, we were in really good hands um yeah regina gave us the floor really she 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 created an atmosphere that was very very calm and very very it was just just the, just the, the overall focus was about performance and acting and you know i feel like like sets can be very technical sort of like noisy places and and, and it, the hotel room really felt like a rehearsal room floor and we had so much freedom to play and discover and find things and stop and talk and you know go over ideas and check in and, and regina you know, she, yeah, really, we're talking about someone who understands the acting process, like in such mm. a profound way. So she only ever sort of like guided us and helped us. And she just knows exactly what to say and, and when to say it and, and how to encourage and help performance in, 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 the, in the best way. And like, as an actor, you just look back and I'm like, I'm just so grateful to have had that experience, especially playing someone like Malcolm in these big, like 14, 15 page scenes, you know, where you need flow, like you need, you need to play it like you're, 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 you need the full flow of the scene to like get into the rhythm and the musicality of like Kemp's words. And we all understood mm -hmm. that and Regina understood that and, and, and the playing of it was just, Oh, it was just such a joy. Like you, you really, I remember when I first read this, I was like, you really don't get 
movies like this that you know where there's so much dialogue and 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 also but so much dialogue but playing these characters and then it's like regina yeah. king's directing it on top of that and and yeah it, it was just it was it was just a joy like i you know um and, and and i say the same thing about the audition process really i was like you know with an audition like that i was like at the very very least you get a long weekend to go and like have a go at like preparing Malcolm X. And I remember the playing of it. I, I got two of my, my friends to come in and read the different parts. And we had a blast. Like we just spent a couple of hours in the studio, like playing around with it and like trying different things out. And, and so, and when I sent those takes over to Regina, like I was, I was happy that she'd just seen some of my work and whatever direction she wanted to go in, like, all good, mm. you know, because it was a really, really fun time. Like just from start, start to finish was just a really, it just such an incredible process. Looking back, I'm like, I'm stunned at, at, at the idea that, that we got to play those roles, man. Like it's, it's nuts. I think possibly one of the reasons why you felt that Cassius wasn't a good fit for you was not only the 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 age difference, I guess, as a twenty two year old Cassius Clay, but the fact that you'd been cast to play Muhammad Ali in Ang Lee's Thriller in Manila, which hasn't happened, hasn't materialized yet. And I know you spent a couple of years working on that. Um, was that yeah. possibly the case that you know you had spent so long getting into that version of that character's head that 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 this version didn't really sing for you i think so yeah it was it was that was two two years of my it was a long time ago it was two years of my of my of my life that you know i spent sort of flying out and working with ang and you know i was in the philippines for a few months training in a boxing gym and yeah we we, we lost we lost the money for that film but yeah i guess i guess on some level yeah when i read this when i read the cash clay and cash is clay in this film it something didn't feel right maybe i was maybe i was maybe i was done with the idea of, of playing him but no i feel like i feel like i mean it when i say that there was just something about the mm. the youthfulness and the the sort of bubbly energy that i didn't connect with and and the, and the, the muhammad ali in in the thriller in manila was it was a it was an entirely different exploration of his personality it was to do with a much more a darker uh narcissistic sort of me 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 version of, of muhammad ali and joe frazier was definitely the hero of the movie um so yeah they, they were different characterizations and listen the, the the joy of that whole experience was was getting to work with ang on the rehearsal room floor and you know we had some incredible conversations and like as a young actor coming through you know that one-on-one -on -one time with with such a master you know subconsciously it, it, it feeds you with confidence even if it was a huge disappointment you know not getting the money to make the movie but like I look back on that time with Ang, particularly in the boxing gyms. I see hilarious. Like he's hilarious. It was like my first experience of like working with a real artist filmmaker who really had no. It was it was just a, a, a mind blowing experience. So like it's, it's all good. Yeah. And and Ma Malcolm definitely felt like the character in this movie for me. And I knew that in a strong way after reading it once. I was like, that's that's the part that I think I can I can bring the most to. And, uh, and, you know, just feel, feel lucky that the part became available and, you know, Regina and I got to connect on it. So 
fingers crossed, you know, hopefully maybe one day Thriller Manila might get funded. Maybe someone, if anyone's listening, if any, yeah, I know people who work in Hollywood <laughs> listen to this. So if anyone has a spare $150 million, throw it Ian Lee's way and let's get exactly. you know, Kingsley back yeah. as, as Muhammad Ali. Let's make it happen. Older as well, so we need to get this, we need to get this. Oh, it's moving. mocap. It's fine. Yeah, yeah it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You could be 75 and still play Muhammad Ali for Ian Lee. It's totally fine. You'd be fine. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, yeah. Kingsley, it's been a pleasure, man. I'm going to let you go. Nice Thanks one, very Chris. much indeed. Thanks, man. Great talking to you. Cheers. Speak again. Thank you. All right. Bye. Take care. Okay, so that was Kingsley Ben Adir. And we'll be talking about One Night in Miami in just a few minutes in the reviews section. But first off, we're going to depart somewhat from tradition and talk about a TV show, first of On all. On the Pilot TV podcast <laughs> this week. Oh, my God. <laughs> we are Here actually we reviewing this on the Pilot TV podcast this week, so I think of this yes. as a, an amuse-bouche. But I, I realised this morning that we uh, otherwise we're going to talk about WandaVision in our weekly spoiler specials, which are going to be out every Monday, uh, starting this Monday. If you are a subscriber to the Spoiler Special channel, then you can look forward to that. But regular podcast listeners wouldn't get to hear us talk about Marvel, and uh, frankly... <laughs> the notion. I know, can you imagine <laughs> such a thing? Uh, but it has been... It's been, Helen, it's been a year and a half, pretty much, since we talked about proper MCU content. The last thing was mm-hmm. Spider-Man Far From Home. Nothing at all. Last year, they went full Glastonbury. They had a fallow year. And now they're back, back, back with what was meant to be the fourth part of Phase 4 is now the first part of Phase 4. It is WandaVision. It is the first of the Kevin Feige-centric TV shows that are going to be hitting Disney+, Plus. Uh, well, until all of us die and beyond. <laughs> and... This focuses on Wanda Maximoff, played by Elizabeth Olsen, and Fission, played by Paul Bettany, who are living an idyllic life in a 1950s suburb um, in what seems to be some sort of 1950s sitcom. But wait, what the hell is happening? Isn't Vision dead? Mm. Spoiler. Isn't, you know, what's what's going on? And uh, that's just part of the the fun of this show, I think, trying to figure out what the hell exactly is going on. But what do we think? We've seen two. We've seen two episodes so far. The two first two episodes are going to be debuting on Disney Plus. They will be available by the time you're listening to this. So, what do we make of it? I'm very much enjoying it. It will shock and amaze you to know this. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, but I'm I'm very much enjoying the fact that this. I have no bloody idea um, exactly what's coming. I've got some educated guesses. But the fact that they are committing as as hard as they are to the format that they are, which is that each of the two episodes we've seen so far, and you know, I think continuing ahead from everything we've seen in the trailer and so on, is a kind of different era of sitcom history. So the first episode is a kind of Dick Van Dyke show, I Love Lucy-esque kind of caper. Um, the second one jo- jumps a little bit ahead, becomes a little bit more bewitched or, you know, um, what was it? I Dream of Genie. I Dream of Genie, yeah. Uh, so it, it's kind of, that's kind of 50s moving into the 60s or, or maybe early 60s moving into the late 60s. Um, and from what we've seen in the trailers, you know, they're going to go 70s, 80s and so on. And that is intriguing. You know, people who s- say that superhero stories are all just punching and, you know, explosions and giant things hovering over cities. There has been that tendency in the past, but this seems to be an extremely different take on it, and I'm I'm kind of intrigued, and I'm enjoying that it plays into stuff that we've seen in the comics that worked really really well, 
which is that Wanda in the comics has always been a little bit fragile and she's always, she's endured a lot of loss, but it's actually had an emotional effect on her in a way that we don't always see in comics. You know, there, there is a toll on all of this death and resurrection and so on. And so that allows them to do something that we haven't maybe seen before, which is maybe to deal with kind of, you know, mental health issues and maybe to deal with actual trauma. Uh, in a way that superhero movies don't always acknowledge. So if that's part of what's going on here, mm-hmm. then that's kind of exciting. The, 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 you know, the thing is, Wanda has the power to create reality. Mm. So is that, what's, is that what she's doing, or is there something more sinister at work? Who knows? It's why she's such an interesting character, because she's one of the most powerful characters, and her powers are very sort of loosely defined. Mm. Uh, so you kind of think she, you can kind of do what you want with her. Um, and th- this is one of those shows where I fully, int- I fully expect by the end of WandaVision, I will think this is a masterpiece. I'm not there yet. And- <laughs> For that statement. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Four-star masterpiece or, or, or just it a regular well four-star Or even an actual five-star masterpiece. Who knows? Talking might direct the final episode. But um, I... <sighs> The thing with this is it is building up to 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 showing a picture of a larger tapestry. And I think until you can see the whole thing, it's really hard to judge this show because on the basis of the first two episodes, it's just a fucking period sitcom. And that's fine. And there are moments where there is more than that. These are characters you are familiar with. And there are moments where the illusion starts to strain and crack, if not exactly break. And I love those moments. I love the idea that I'm seeing slightly beyond to see what's behind this. And mm. I'm interested in what's behind this, but I'm just not interested in this because I'm not a fan of particularly twee period sitcoms and that is largely what this is that said I do think it's genius and I, I love the fact that as this goes on no I do I think the execution of this is, is amazing I think it's audacious I think it's incredibly well put together it's just not the kind of television I enjoy uh, but I think it will become the television I enjoy as two things happen I think as it moves away from 50s 60s 70s sitcoms and becomes more contemporary and they move into more of an office space if you will um, oh boy. I think I will like that more but also as we pull back the curtain as we see the sort of the boundaries of this reality that she's created as we see the fringes of it I think that's going to be the show I want to see I want to see the show behind the show I just don't want to see the show if that makes sense it's the space between spaces that I want to see you. the space oh, between spaces yes 100% oh, Lord. let's not go uh, there please but you know let's be honest like the first episode of this is literally a 50s sitcom you know yes there's more going on You're, you know there are layers it's a bit meta but it is a 50s sitcom if anyone was waiting you know within the first five minutes oh when are we going to see what's really happening like you've got a long wait the end titles will come and you'll be like huh I mean not a long wait it's a fairly you okay, know, it's not a long it's show. A it's a like half an hour, yeah. but still. Yeah, and these are the yeah these are short episodes. I think which is which which helps as well. Uh, the commitment to the conceit is yes. admirable, even in the fact that the jokes themselves are a little bit lame. They're almost like things that you would have got in the 1950s. Yeah, but the joy, the joy. I'm surprised, Jimbo, that you haven't focused on this. Is it's yes, it's a 50 sitcom, but it's a 50 sitcom with Wanda Maximoff and Vision at its <laughs> center, and they both still have powers and they're. Both still doing whatever it is they do. And Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany are having incredible amounts of fun. Bettany particularly in the second They're episode so where yeah. something happens to I don't want to go into spoilers, but something happens to Vision that makes him go a little bit skew-whiff and it's very, very funny. And she's very funny as well, you know, in, in a way mm. that I think we haven't uh, really got a chance to see her display this particular string to her bow uh, or is that a Hawkeye reference I'm not sure uh, in, in the in the movies because Wanda Wanda and Vision they, they you know I think if you probably totted up their screen time over the, the, the previous movies what 18 minutes 19 minutes 
overall in the movies so far. So in one episode alone, they're surpassing that. I think it's really interesting in terms of getting to know her in particular. It's going in very, very interesting directions. I should stop saying interesting, but it is. And when I did the cover feature for this, Feige and the showrunner Jack Schaefer and the director Matt Shackman were at pains to say that it won't be adhering to this format forever. Mm. So it's not going to be uh, an era per episode. It's going to start moving in different directions and go off in very, very bizarre directions, I, which I'm going to be very, very intrigued to see how that, that works. Um, how it impacts upon the characters and the more sort of MCU-iness of it begins mm-hmm. to intrude upon the show that it is at the moment. But what a bold swing for the fences. Seriously. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, and, and this is something that they have earned. They've earned the right to do this over mm-hmm. 23 films um, to take these wild creative swings. I think Loki's going to be another one. I think Falcon and Winter Soldier is going to be a little bit more familiar. It would have been the first thing we were going to see in the MCU Disney Plus shows. But, you know, for this to be the first thing we've seen of the MCU for ages, and it's fucking weird as shit, then I am absolutely <laughs> 100% there for that. Um, Helen's writing in review for the first two episodes, and she's going four stars for this, and I am on board with that. Four stars then for WandaVision. Uh, it's available on Disney+. Plus. Uh, available on Amazon Prime Video is One Night at Miami, which is the aforementioned Regina King directorial debut. Um, in which four titans, four uh, four African-American titans get together in a motel room. Cassius Clay, as he was then, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke, played respectively by Eli Gorey, Kingsley Benadir, Aldous Hodge, and Leslie Odom Jr. I really, really like this one. What did you guys think? No, no, I, I love this. I thought it was really, really engrossing. So this is this is uh, adapted by Kent Powers from his stage play, and I think like it feels very theatrical. There's a lot in this which isn't in the stage play. Uh, there's a scene, where, there's a proper kind of like jaw on the floor scene with Bo Bridges, which I mm. almost couldn't believe I'd heard. Um, but what's great about this is you see these guys, and we're so familiar with these iconic people as as public personas, as outward facing people. And this is almost like, you know, fictional as it may be, an interior look at what makes these famous people tick and having them all together in this hotel room. So this is after... Um, after Muhammad Ali, uh, he won the uh, the heavyweight championship, and instead of going out famously, they all went back to a hotel room and ate ice cream. And obviously, that's what we know. That those are the facts on the ground. What we don't know is what they be, what we talked about. And this is kind of Power's hypothesis of what might have happened in that room and what the conversations mm. uh, might have taken place. And it's it's just an incredible look at the inner lives of these people. You know, it's you know what what they might have discussed among their peers behind closed doors. Like his dialogue is really authentic. It's really provocative. I think they fight, they philosophize, they wrestle with issues of race and and faith and success and civil rights and responsibility. Uh, Mm. And each one of those guys, like they go in absolutely guns blazing. I think Gory really captures Ali's kind of cocksure manner. But, Mm. and not just because he was on this podcast and uh, not just because he was great in High Fidelity, but uh, Kingsley Benadir is magnificent in this as Malcolm X. He's an absolute powerhouse as kind of this righteous preacher calling out his friends for what he sees as their their kind of hypocrisies and failings. Um, I think also huge props to King on this because I think the direction is really, really confident. And I just thought an incredible job was done here to make the framing keep as many of the, the players in frame at once and maintain that stage feeling, but also not be afraid to break it out, whether it be with the stuff in the prologue, the stuff that's introduced into the film, or mm-hmm. they go up onto the roof to have a bit of an altercation up there when they pop to the store, you know, to broaden the canvas a little bit so mm-hmm. it doesn't feel too claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 
I mean, this is what, it was 1964, wasn't it? This is sad. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was a pretty critical moment in American history. You know, civil rights were at the heart of conversation. Conversation, I think, let's be honest, that is still taking place in the last four, day, four years. I've made that painfully clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of, it's part history lesson. It's part celebrity voyeur fantasy and it's part beautifully crafted theater and i i mm. I, I love that it embraces its stage origins i just think yeah i thought it was great oh, it was great stuff yeah. mm. i echo basically all of that i think it's it's interesting that i think i think this goes to to paris script as well that that he's found a moment where all of them were kind of at a turning point mm. and he may have slightly fudged that timing for a couple of them i guess to make this work i don't know but it yeah a little it, bit it, he gives all of them a real kind of choice to make something yeah. a real dilemma to work out and the others are the only ones who can kind of understand that dilemma and maybe contribute to to figuring out what should come next and i i think that just gives each of them like a reason to be there beyond you know, just being icons and beyond the sort of imagined, oh, what if these guys, you know, met and talked? What would they talk about? He's he's really found a dramatic reason for this to, re- to exist. And I thought that was fantastic. And mm. again, yeah, Regina King, what a woman. My God, is there anything she can't do? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think if this is her first film, I cannot wait to see what she does next. <laughs> Two Nights in Miami would be the, the next one. <laughs> I guess, yeah. yeah. I'm bang up for that. That'd be great. Uh, yeah, I, I echo all of that. There's extra layers as well um, in that both Sam Cooke and Malcolm X would be dead within a, a year mm. of the events of this this movie. And uh, there's a little bit of that that hangs in the air. Obviously, neither of those gentlemen are aware of it, but the film's aware of it, I think. Yeah. Uh, and Malcolm X in particular is, you know, he is the change agent in this movie. He is the guy who really sits down with every single one of these guys and challenges them and pushes them and talks about their place in society and their place in the world and their, as James said, the responsibilities as as black role models as well. But he also gets pushed back as mm-hmm. well. So he's not presented as a martyr in this. There are there are edges to Malcolm X, which I thought was really, really interesting. But I thought everyone in this is terrific. I mean, yeah. good luck choosing someone to, you mm-hmm. know, put up for the Oscars for this because they're all they're all blindingly good. Mm-hmm. I guess probably the bulk of the dramatic Wait, the real dramatic meat falls to Kingsley Benadire and to Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke, because Sam Cooke was someone who was a soul singer and he was his lyrics were not really engaging with with um, the modern world. And Malcolm X is cajoling him and pushing him. There's a little bit of fudging there with when a change is going to come was mm. was written and released. Um, but that's fine. Um, but it's really, 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 really well acted, really well directed. Doesn't feel stagey or claustrophobic in any way, shape, or form. Not that there's anything wrong with that, as you know, we love Ma Raimi's Black Bottom. We love Glengarry Glen Ross for, for those reasons. But yeah, this is terrific. We gave us one five stars. And so if you can this week, seek it out on Amazon Prime Video. Two last films to very, very quickly talk about. Uh, one is if I've just realized that both actors this week on the podcast were British actors playing famous figures. How did I not put that together? I might have actually mentioned something about it in the interviews. My God. Kingsley Benadire plays Malcolm X and Johnny Flynn plays David Bowie in Stardust, which is the David Bowie biopic that doesn't have any David Bowie music. I got past that, Helen. Did you? I struggled with it, I'll be honest. Um, I think it... Okay, if you're going to do a biopic, even about a specific moment in someone's life, and you don't have the family's blessing and you don't have the rights to use the music, you're already up against it. And then I think... The pressure is on you to make sure that 
everything else is superb. And I don't think that this film did that. Like Johnny Flynn, I think is a fantastic uh, singer and actor, incredibly gifted guy. I can see on paper exactly why you'd cast him. I feel like I look more like David Bowie than he does. Like I, I didn't see <laughs> any resemblance, and I, 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 I know that's not the point in biopics, and and I try to get past it. But I really struggled with that in this case. I, I had a real, real. I, I was really kind of looking for Bowie in his performance, and there were moments where I think it's a, a technically good performance, but I couldn't connect it to the Bowie that I know as a fairly casual fan. I have to have to confess. So, so I just really struggled to to get this the point and the weight and the importance of this as a as a film. And yeah, it didn't it didn't particularly win me over. I thought that you know Jenna Malone, who's usually pretty reliable, was very broad in this. Um, Mark Moran, who I like a lot, was kind of seemed to be acting with one hand tied behind his back. And and I liked the relationship that he and, and Bowie had. So he plays uh, Ron Oberman, who is the kind of publicist, stuck looking after this rock star who had come to America expecting his big break, expecting to be playing a, a tour, and then didn't have his visa. So was kind of stuck there with with very little to do. And I got his frustration, but it, you know, he, there wasn't enough there. There wasn't enough of a relationship between the two of them, I didn't think, mm. to okay. justify this focus. So I just, I, I really struggled to be engaged by this, I'll be honest. I, It was interesting. I didn't know all of the stuff in here. I learned some things about Bowie's history, mm-hmm. but I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't loving it. As I said to Johnny Flynn in the interview, I think it's going to be really difficult to do a soup to nuts, cradle to grave biopic of David Bowie because the man was just, you just couldn't pin him down. He was, he was so such a polymath. You just, yeah, it's, it's going to be really, really difficult. So the way in is maybe to do something like this. It's not filled with drama, but I enjoyed it for what it was. But, you know, it's an interesting and unusual approach, I think. Um, I, I had a decent time with it. Uh, I would probably go a low three in the grand scheme of things. Helen sounds like you're in the two-star camp. Yeah, afraid so. All right, so let's put those together. That's two and a half. Let's round it up. <laughs> no, two and a half no. stars. <laughs> two and a half stars, which rounded up to three. Let's give it five. Five stars then for Stardust. Oh <laughs> five stars then for Stardust. Lastly, this week we have Blythe Spirit, which is going to be available on Sky Cinema. It's a Sky Cinema original. Their track record so far, Helen, has not been great over the years in terms of Sky Cinema originals. Mm. Um, how is their track record holding up uh, with this adaptation of the Noel Coward play? Well, they've done it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, this, I'll be honest, this is just not good, I didn't think. So it's the story of a crime novelist who's played by Dan Stevens, who is uh, f- struggling with writer's block. He's he's under pressure to deliver a screenplay to his father-in-law. His wife is Ruth, played by Isla Fisher, and he's he can't get it off the ground. Um so when he hears about this medium played by Judy Dench, he invites her to the house in the hope that this will somehow, you know, shake something loose. And it does, but not in the way he expected. She unexpectedly summons the ghost of his first wife, who's played by Leslie Mann, and she comes back to haunt him. She is not willing to accept that he has moved on and remarried and is determined to get him back essentially for herself. But in the short term, she does potentially help him get his writing on again. The problem is that, for me, that this is played 
so broadly, I can't even tell you. I've seen this on stage. I think it was Angela Lansbury played the medium when I saw it. You know, that had more life about it, I thought, than this one, because this one is just like a pantomime adaptation of Noel Card. And I don't feel like you need to go, you know, 10 to the dozen to make Noel Card funny. He's just funny. So why not just trust the lines? When done well, this is a really kind of dark, twisted, funny comedy. Mm. This I find barely funny um, and and kind of mean-spirited rather than simply dark. So I just didn't warm to it. That's a shame. That's a shame. Two stars and two stars for Blythe Spirit. And I can assure you that it's the last time we will be discussing that movie on the Empire Podcast. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Isla Fisher, the star of Blythe Spirit. <laughs> Thankfully, Helen's not doing the interview for that one. <laughs> and <laughs> we're also going to be joined by Rose Matafeo, star of Baby Done, making it a double whammy of Antipodean actresses. Uh, both his interviews uh, are in the can. I had an absolute blast So, with both Rose and Isla, so look forward to that. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from the mouth of Sauron. James Dyer. Oh, thanks, Chris. You're so kind. Um, <laughs> yes, goodbye to everyone. This episode of the Empire Podcast has been sponsored by the Pilot TV Podcast. I will say <laughs> that Monday's Pilot TV Podcast is a special one because Russell T. Davis, the man who resurrected Doctor Who himself, will be joining us as a guest co-host. Cool. Uh, his new show, It's a Sin, is out next week. And, uh, and so he'll be on there talking about that and presumably schooling me as to why I'm wrong to not like Doctor Who. So that should be fun. His era of Doctor Who is Bloody yeah. brilliant. I suspect he's going to wipe the floor with me, so that should be Four voice incoming in five, four, <laughs> three, two. Is it though? Yeah, it really is. Also, his book about writing his era of Doctor Who is also incredible. I'm sure it is. You know, he's a tremendous, he's tremendous amazing. act. He's yeah, amazing. Tremendous writing, but um, come on. Yeah, that should be fun. It is also goodbye from Miami Nice, which is so close to being a play on one of the worst Only Fools and Horses Christmas specials, <laughs> Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. 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 I was not thinking of um, Only Fools and Horses at the time, no. just to be clear. Miami Twice. Do you know that episode oh, in which Del Boy uh, and Rodney go to Miami and it turns out that there's a Miami Mafia crime boss who looks exactly like Del Boy and what? hilarity fails to ensue for two <laughs> torturous episodes. Such a shame. Anyway, it's goodbye from me. Also, No More Heroes is my squadcast name this week to reflect the current parlous state of my relationship with the Christmas chocolate cupboard. No. <laughs> I thought it was a an oblique reference to No More Mutants, of course, the uh, Wanda Maximoff House mm. of M line, and you change it from mutants to heroes because Marvel mm -hmm. didn't have the right to mutants and only to heroes, and it was quite meta. Mm -hmm. Well, it was an oblique reference to that, but not for that reason, but also because I literally just have run out of heroes. But it's okay. <laughs> Army Hammer has just slid into my DM oh, saying, do you no. want to grab a bite to eat? So no. I'm off. No. <laughs> oh, God. I'm off for a burger with, with good old Army. Oh, I'd check the menu before you go, Chris. Thanks yeah. for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.